episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, created by the great Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to treat addicts and alcoholics by using compassion and connection and not control. Their team has an incredible track record of treating patients with co-occurring mental disorders, including SMI. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, sound bath meditation, fucking equine therapy, surfing, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. Oro is an amazing place. I can do the ad in my sleep, but what I have to convey to you guys is how much everyone that we know that has been there has said such good things about Oro. So if you're looking for a spot to go and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I cannot suggest checking out ororecovery.com enough. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. I imagine a large percentage of us have tried to get sober in the new year and failed. Not because we wanted to, but because we had nothing keeping us accountable. After all, who would really know if we drank? Soberlink is the only high-tech breathalyzer system that keeps you honest, especially when cravings get a little too loud. I love it because you test the same time every day, eliminating testing anxiety. I love that the devices have built-in facial recognition so it knows if it's you testing. I love that tamper sensors flag any attempts of you trying to beat the system. And I love that friends and family are instantly receiving the test results, helping to rebuild trust and prevent relapse. Let 2024 be the year you finally make the change. Visit www.soberlink.com slash dopey and you get 50 bucks off your first device. 
Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and I'm very, very happy to be here. I'm actually at my dad's house. Nobody's here. It's like a fucking paradise at my father's house when no one is here. I do kind of mess it up, though, and I'm going to have to clean it up before he gets back. My dad's going to get back in like two weeks. So one of these days, the plant's got to get watered. The male's got to get got. And I got to clean this place up. And um, it's ironic that I'm almost 50 years old and feel very similar to how I felt when I was 19 or 15. But uh, I miss my father. I cannot wait for his return. He is a joy to be around. I know he's listening to the show. And he's not going to be on this episode, but he will be back soon, as will Fentanyl Jay. I heard from Jay yesterday. He's ready. To, he's ready to come back. So... Lots of Fentanyl J devotees out there messaging, tweeting. They want to know what's going on. He will be back soon. Tomorrow, I'm flying to Los Angeles to try to collect some new material for the show. It's going to be a wild, dopey weekend in L.A., and I'm trying to get shit done. But for this episode, it is a dopey, it is a new dopey classic a new guest who brings a profound level of dopey. His name is Brace Belden. He is one of the hosts of the Truanon podcast, and he was a joy to sit down with at my father's house. And we've also been getting a smattering of emails and voicemails, and I think I just want to jump into it. I feel a lot of anxiety, I have to tell you. It's 422 on Thursday right now. I, need, I, I don't want to make you guys anxious, but I need to be on the Long Island Railroad in less than an hour. I need to be on a plane at like 6.55 in the morning tomorrow, which means I have to get up at 3 in the morning. I find traveling to be very frightening to me when I have to travel alone. I don't know why. I just get nervous that I'm going to forget something, like that I'll leave. Like, like I have old school kind of... Um, Addicty thoughts, like I'll leave, really irresponsible child thoughts. I think that the pattern in this open of the show is I'm still an irresponsible child at heart. And I think it's time to claim my adulthood. So I'm excited for this trip. I'm excited for this show. I need you guys to send in more dopey emails and voicemails. We're going to kick this show off with a voicemail from one of the few dopes who participated in the dopey rehab scholarship program her name is charlotte and she's celebrating four years here's charlotte hey dave this is my four years sober and also of course the four-year anniversary of when dopey sent me to rehab on the dopey scholarship and um as you know but your listeners may not know i got married this year and i have a baby on the way and um I just absolutely love my life. I never imagined that I would have the life today that um, when I was just like drinking malt liquor every day and getting in fights with my friends and doing cocaine and manufacturing illegal steroids um, in some of the white trash areas of Texas uh, that I would be doing what I'm doing today. And so I just want to say thank you so much for this opportunity. And I um, yeah, and I'm just so thankful to have sobriety in my life and none of this would be possible at all without you guys sending me to rehab. So I'm thankful for that every day. 
And for anybody out there who's thinking about getting clean or sober or thinking about getting going to rehab, if you can, just try it. Like, if you hate it, you can always just say fuck it and go back. But I think it's really worth just like experiencing what life is like sober. So if you're sober curious, yeah, if you have the ability and if you have the resources, I definitely recommend giving it a shot. All right. I'm super, super excited for Charlotte. And, uh, and she definitely puts in the work. And then we need to give a huge shout out also to Justin Cambria and the good people at Turnbridge. I don't trust my applause thing to applaud, so we'll do vape knocks for Justin and Turnbridge and, and Charlotte. It's like, it's fucking amazing. Send in your anniversaries. Send it all in. I have another pseudo anniversary from another old school dope. Uh, Matthew Wiedemeyer Carroll five years ago started a phenomenon in Dopey Nation Facebook and the Dopey Podcast Facebook group called Waiting For Tonight. What's up, Dave and Dopey Nation? It's Matt Wiedemeyer Carroll coming to you live from Iowa, and it is the five-year anniversary of Waiting For Tonight. Damn, I didn't think it would ever go this long. That's freaking crazy. But I'm going to keep on doing it, man. We got to have our waiting. We gots to be waiting. You know, I put the first one up, which was on Twitter. That was the very first one. And I don't know how it evolved into cute little kitties, but you know how shit changes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. waiting for tonight is in jeopardy on uh, Twitter. We don't have very many likes, so we might be taking it down sometime soon. So anywho, um, I'm doing good. Working my program. I'm on step four, writing my inventory. It's moving right along. Um... I really hate bringing up all that shit from the past, but it's coming to head, and I finally get to get rid of all that stuff that I've been carrying around my whole life, and I'm really looking forward to it. So, got about 117 days sober, feeling great, going to meetings and doing all that shit that nobody likes to do, but I have to do it because I was all out of options, and it's working, so I'm not going to question it. Anywho, um, if y'all need any Caitlin Clark cards, graded Caitlin Clark cards, I got them. And if anybody needs any cards graded, I can do that for you. Support the side hustle. Support the side hustle. Stay strong, Doby Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I have no idea what he's talking about. What are Caitlin Clark graded cards? I don't know how Matt managed to plug a side hustle. But, I like you know, Matt's doing good. I'm happy for Matt. Matt, here's some vape knocks. <clears throat> Waiting for tonight is a phenomenon on Facebook that he started when he was waiting for the show. And it's galvanized a world of dopes to wait with him. And that always, it just always made me feel good. So thank you for doing that, Matthew. And yes, wait for tonight on Twitter with Matthew. I've given up on Twitter too, but keep posting it on Twitter anyway. So I got an honest to goodness dopey story voicemail today. It is super short, maybe even too short. It's from a woman named Kimber who actually was featured on a very dopey style episode of, of I was going to say of Waiting for Tonight, of This American Life, where they talk about, the it's called The Call, and it's all about the, the phenomenal call program, the Never Use Alone program, and Kimber is featured on it, and a guy named Stephen Murray is featured on it, and Stephen runs a program in Massachusetts called... The Massachusetts Overdose Prevention Helpline. And I recorded with Steven, and he's a pretty incredible guy. He helps a ton of addicts 
around the country and, and and really speaks quite brilliantly around addiction and recovery and treating overdose. He's an overdose researcher, which is really, really interesting. And the woman who actually made the call after shooting herself in the neck with heroin, uh, he revived her, and now she works with him at the Massachusetts Overdose Prevention Helpline. Her name is Kimber, but before I play her voicemail, I just need to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by Mountainside. Mountainside is an incredible treatment center. It is where Chris and I first met. It is an amazing place. It is in rural Connecticut, in Canaan, Connecticut. They offer a full continuum of care, which includes every aspect of recovery program you can imagine, from detox to recovery coaching programs. We knew one of their greatest coaches, Bill Blaber. I've befriended some new coaches over there. Mountainside does an amazing job helping addicts. They have a huge range of holistic wellness activities, yoga, qigong, acupuncture, sound bath. It is an incredible place. It will always be in my heart, mostly because it's the place that allowed for Dopey to be born. So check out mountainside.com slash Dopey. They also have a hotline. Give them a call at 888-833-4922 and please tell them that Dopey sent you. And now here's some Dopey antics from Kimber. Hi, Dopey Nation. I love the podcast. My story starts, um, I was new in town and had some newly found friends. And a friend of a friend introduced me to this hippie in town that sold ketamine. So I was hanging out with this guy who had recently got into a car accident and had a full metal halo. He had broken his neck. I was hanging out with him, and that particular night he had a Russian stripper from um, New York with him. So this is the first time I ever met this girl. And I ended up doing an heroic amount of ketamine and went back to my apartment, had a somewhat of a freak out, and threw the friends with the full metal halo into the wall. I mean, this guy was like 6'4", and I am a 5'1", 100-pound girl. And I went to run out my front door, and he pulled me back in the house because it was like 3 in the morning. And I came back in, and the Russian stripper tried to grab me to calm me down. And I fully bit her on the hand right in the webbing between the pointer and um, thumb until she bled. Um I don't know how I survived that night. Um, I kept doing more, and eventually I calmed down in the morning. Um, I am 20 months clean and sober, um, and I'm happy for that. Uh, Thank you so much. That's the serious ketamine bite them in the hand dopey that we like to hear. So thank you, Kimber. You get dopey socks. Send in an email with your address and maybe another dopey story and I will send you a nice shiny pair of new dopey socks. And if anyone in the dopey nation is interested in getting a free pair of incredibly comfortable and empowering dopey socks, send in a fucking email or a voicemail, make it short, make it dopey or comment on some aspect of the show. I love to read comments from you guys. 
I just got this one, and this is from an old show when we were in Disney and I got recognized. And the person says, why are drug addicts in Disney? Florida was the epi epicenter for the opiate pill mills during the Sackler fiasco. Now a lot of those fiends are living off fentanyl and meth as well as government assisted assistance that probably includes day trips to Disney. Yeah, I don't think so. I think I think that addicts are trying to reclaim the innocence of their life and bringing kids to Disney. So that's a nice message. And here I got one from Lou. And Lou says, Lou here, Brazilian dude writing from Germany, old listener, started back and almost reaching current episode, got a voice played once also. The amount of time I listened when added up is insane. Spotify says I put 15,000 minutes into it last year. That's what I like to hear. Right on, Lou. Here's a vape knock. <clears throat> Dave went from being heroin addict to content dealer. LOL. Oh, man, I miss Chris. I put the image in attachment, top 1% fan, but still with freezing my feet because you refused to send socks to Germany. Nah, I'm messing. Keep it up. We all love listening to you. Your ego can be happy. Thanks, Lou. I'm going to send socks to Germany. Fuck it. This is going to be like the most expensive episode ever because I'm about to read an email from Australia. And Aust Australia shipping and fucking Germany shipping can co cost a pretty penny, but... The, the material is worth it. And this is from Matt in Australia. And he says, Matt, he again. I'm not going to try to do an Australian accent. I just started reading this book. It's pretty interesting. You should check it out. It's called The Sober Truth, Debunking the Bad Science Behind 12-Step Programs and the Rehab Industry. The author could be a, a, great de a great guest. You just read my last email on Dopey in response to the higher power stuff. I'm definitely a spiritual person to meditate daily when in rehab. I tried prayer and Christianity, but decided that definitely wasn't for me. I don't believe in any God. I can understand the higher power form from the perspective of nature or universe, though. But for me, prayer or the idea that something is looking out for me just makes no sense. And I have no reason to believe or think it. I just heard Damien's story about Datura. Datura is a bit of an urban legend in Australia. People who use, who use talk about it sometimes and have pointed it out to me before, but I've never heard of anyone actually taking it. Damien sounds like a true Aussie bogan. I don't know if bogan is really a thing. What a legend. He definitely has a mullet. Would love to hear more of him. You know, it's funny. I actually have a shit ton more from him. It just got so crazy I never played it. But I will play more of Damien for you soon. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. Is it Bogan? Anyone in Australia, can you confirm that Bogan is a thing? I don't know. I need to say how excited I am. I'm going to go to Florida at the end of March and be a guest on the Hell Has an Exit podcast with Brian. It's going to be amazing. Their show is fucking hardcore. This week on their show, our old friend Brandon Novak is on there. Bring in the fucking goods. Check him out at Hell has an exit.com. They shoot beautiful video. The show is all about recovering addicts, people who have spent decades in prison for wrongful convictions. I've, I actually got an email from somebody who really, really enjoyed Hell Has an Exit. So check them out at hellhasanexit.com. We have a crazy long interview, a crazy long uninterrupted interview with Brace Belden coming up in a second. Where And it's like wall to wall 
injecting heroin and meth. So all the old school dopes can, uh, can take a deep breath. I'm going to read another note. But before I read the note, I want to just thank Diamond Recovery Group for sponsoring our show. I'm so happy that you guys are involved with us. Diamond is incredible because their mission is just to help as many addicts as that they can help. They have a spot in Florida. They have a spot in Georgia. They have a spot in California. They've set up a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week hotline. So if you or someone you know that needs a friendly ear, they've got your back. Huge shout-out to Diamond Recovery Group for being real-life heroes to the addiction support game, especially by sponsoring Dopey, because we need all the help we can get. Call them or text them. That's rare that you can text a hotline. Call or text them at 855-625-8124 if you're feeling down, if you need some help. 855-625-8124. And thank you again, Diamond Recovery, for sponsoring our show. I'm going to read another note, another really nice little dopey note, which makes me feel good. Oh, I wanted to talk about Matt's email for a second. Higher power shit is like the biggest problem that people have in getting sober. I don't think you need to have a higher power. I just think you need to surrender to the fact that you're not going to be able to pull it off without help. And help doesn't have to be Jesus or God. It doesn't even need to be nature or the universe. It just needs to be something that isn't you. And also, how many Australians really do have mullets? I would really like to know. I got this very, very nice email from Liz, and she writes, Hey Dave, my name is Liz, but you can call me Z. I just listened to the Dopey IV podcast episode. The energy was electric, and I've never felt closer to Dopey Nation than I do now. I've been in recovery for three years. Someone in my recovery community actually got me a coin, which I've never gotten before. I'm grateful to have found a recovery community, and I look forward to adding the Dopey Nation to that community. Hope to catch you on a Zoom sometime and planning on coming to DopeyCon V. But we're not, we're not certain it's going to be called DopeyCon V. Sorry, James Glennie. Uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. P.S. While in active addiction, I decided to write a senior honors thesis on others who were doing my drug of choice. I guess you could say I was out of my denial phase at that point. Maybe I'll send you the story sometime. Be well. Thank you, Liz. I appreciate it. What do you... I want to call it Dopey Come 5. James Glennie, who's a super dope, fucking incredible contributor, is convinced it should be called NYV. But that doesn't make any sense, James. I love you. I know that people call New York NYC. But you don't say that when you live here, and no one says NYV. So I need you to restart your marketing campaign and call it DopeyCon5. I can't live with this NYV anymore. I love you, though, James, and appreciate everything that you do. We also have been doing a killer fucking Patreon Zoom on Wednesdays. It's a recovery Zoom. It's, it's multi platform. I mean, it's not 12 step. It, it's got some aspects of other programs. Liz has been bringing in the Dharma. Me and Joe have been going over a lot of different idioms in recovery. So join Patreon and come to the Wednesday meeting. It's pretty, it's pretty good. And if you don't want to do that, go to the Dopey Nation Zoom. They meet 25 times a week. I have it posted on Instagram. 
It's posted in Dopey Nation. It's posted in the Dopey Podcast group already. The key to recovery, if you're interested in recovery, is just dealing with other people. Keep connected to other people and do it through Zoom, do it in person, just do whatever you can do. I think it's time for me to accept that I am an advocate for recovery. I don't want to get crazy, but I, I want to see addicts do well, and, and I like to be of some kind of help and service to people who are trying to get sober. So reach out, join all these dopey practices and be a part of it. We love to have you be a part of it, and I really appreciate it. And I'm excited about our guest today. If I haven't seemed excited enough, I am super excited about our guest. And I'm super grateful for all of our sponsors because they make me a tiny bit closer to quitting Katz's. And that's all I really want. I just want to focus on this all the time. And uh, somebody asked me about the, the doc, and I think the dopey documentary is inching its way towards fruition. And somebody asked, and a lot of people have been asking me about a book, and I could tell you like that's happening, but it's just, it's so much work, and I don't know how to do it, but I'm trying to figure it out. So maybe in the near future there will be a book, The Doc inches its way towards existence, which is very exciting. We have Brace Belden coming up in a long-form, super dopey interview. So get ready for that. But before we do, we have to give one more incredible announcement of gratitude and love to Discover Recovery, founded by Christopher Paulson, friend of the show, friend of mine, good dude, dopey guest, brought the dopey, wants to help addicts, Chris Paulson knows what it takes to help addicts, and he set up an amazing facility in the Pacific Northwest called Discover Recovery. The Pacific Northwest is ripe or rife with drug addiction. They need treatment centers. So Chris Paulson answered the call. He built two locations of Discover Recovery out there. They have a medical staff on-site, physicians doing seven-day-a-week work, they strive to provide the best treatment possible in a region that has historically been underserved. They have master's level therapists, substance abuse disorder counselors, psychiatric counselors, and much more than anything else in the region offers, plus luxury accommodations. I love what Chris said. He said, I'm not great at selling. We operate with integrity. You know one of the co-founders we are trying to do right by those we serve, and we have a proven track record. For more information, check him out at discoverrecovery.com. Chris is a good dude. I believe in him, and I believe in Discover Recovery. And now, without further ado, here he is, the great Brace Belden. We're at my dad's house. This is an honor and a privilege. I have podcast legend, rabble rouser, punk rocker, communist, fucking heroin, meth addict, in recovery, Brace Belden from the True Anon podcast. Welcome to Dopey. It is a pleasure to be here. I love your dad's apartment. I know. It feels good. It's it's nice. You're feeling the commie this Jewish is, vibe. This is, but it's also only the, ta the table a father could have, this kind of table. The funniest thing about the table is uh -huh. that this area yeah. used to be my sister's room. There was a wall here oh, and a I can door. See it. Yeah. And when they bought this table, 
they thought they were on the cusp of the newest and new. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This yeah, is yeah, like yeah, new yeah, in yeah. 1990. This is like, like the new sort of like technology they had to like a patterning. Yeah, yeah right. Feel that it's like snakeskin, nice. right? Yeah. Okay, hold on. Bad boy Brace Belden, piss pig granddad, piss pig grandma, President Chaos, Mister Boyles, Racial Jake, Mister Fireworks, the Gourmand. Coindexter, the dark cowboy, the special ed agent, bubonic brace, dry hole Belden, and of course, Rashid Fouad. Wow. Where I, does this come from? I had never heard uh, special agent, special ed agent. <laughs> I did go to special education, but uh, these are, I have had a lot of nicknames in my life. Uh, and there's actually, I guess, been a like silent war that I didn't realize had been resolved in this way on Wikipedia to add some of these in. And I'm glad at least Mr. Boyles got in. But How? racial Jake is usually my nom de guerre. How? Why? Well, for me, that represents like I feel like I'm the only one who can heal the divide. Nice. And so I take it on that. And that's like my like. Uh, my alter ego for for fixing America is Racial Jake. Racial Jake will go out and spread love and end enmity. Or hate. Whichever one is, we'll is do the trick. will do the trick. I just want to end it. Yeah, I just want to make everyone happy. It's so funny because obviously Brace Belden and I have a lot in common. We're, we're both drug addicts in recovery, Jewish podcasters. Both shirtless right now. Yes. There's a video there. Oh, However, right. you care about shit. Like, it seems like you, I, I don't know anything. Yeah. I don't care about much. I can't possibly. I don't know how to. Yeah, I and get And you that. know so much stuff. That's not true. You no. do. I've listened to your show, The True and On Podcast. It's full of research and information. You know about stuff. Yeah, I know about some stuff. Well, I you probably could. Do you go to college? I did. You did. I, but I didn't. You didn't pay attention. Nah, not too much. Yeah, because no. you started drugs. And yeah, college. that's when you started being a fuck up. When real, I got real bad in college. Do yeah. you ever think like I wish I learned more when I was younger? No, no? I feel I feel really good. Wow. <laughs> I feel really good. I'm about always like fuck, dude. I wish I like learned like about Plato when I was in. Mm. You know, I. I like the idea of wishing that. Okay. Yeah. I, I went to school in, in Manhattan. Yeah. Like the best public school in Manhattan. Yeah. And everyone that I knew knew Plato and, yeah. and crime and punishment and yeah, all. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't understand anything. Me either. Nothing penetrated Nothing. me. And and now sometimes I wish I knew that stuff, but I also like this is about as good as it gets. When I was younger, I guess I used to be like, fuck, dude, I like I wish I like learned division. Uh, and now I'm like, well, I really guess it doesn't matter that I didn't learn it. Nothing really matters. We both have podcasts that people like, and we do well at them. Yeah, I, and I'd you know you can read. I read novels. When did you get into politics? I guess I don't know. I, it's it's hard to it's hard to like nail it down because I've always been interested in politics, but it's like basically through history. Like I got really interested in history when I was young, and then I was like, well, why do things happen in history? Like, what is like the general arc of of like since civilization began, what has happened, and then through that, I kind of just like started reading out some philosophy that I agreed it with, and then you know it went on from there. So punk rock, yeah. communism, or drug use, what which comes first? Punk came first, easy, easily. San Francisco, San Francisco. I, when I was like twelve, I got really, or I think like eleven or twelve. I was really into like Black Sabbath and like. 
you know, Metallica and that kind of stuff. And because it, it was like like songs I'd heard on the radio. And then I remember I was in my family took a vacation to, to Vancouver, Canada. And uh, that's where they shot 21 Jump Street. They did. Yes. They did. And well, I feel like they shoot most movies yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my dad got me a Ramon CD. And then from there, I got like into the Misfits. And so I was, I got really into punk when I was like 12. And did punk open the door to communism and drug use? The politics didn't really have much to, I mean, punk is like, you, you know, it's like punk's politics are like basically that's the dumbest slogan you can think of. And then maybe some stuff about like animals and then some weird, it's like, they are hippies. Like, it's like, they're like, they want like peace or whatever, but they just do it with like a, a image of a mushroom cloud. Right. And so the politics that I learned from punk were generally very stupid and like not necessarily not like ill intentioned or anything like that, but like just not, really dumbed down. Just dumbed, you know what I mean? It's punk. It's stupid. You're drinking a beer. What about crass? Crass. I didn't really like. I thought they were too arty. They were, but they were very political. They were I think, very, yeah. And I think they were very like lefty commie. They were. They were like a little more anarchist. And right. So like, and yeah, they, okay. I yeah. like. I like when you draw the line. I'm not an anarchist. Not at all. No. Not at all. Did your, did you, I mean, my mother's father was a communist. Yeah. These buildings were socialist born. Yeah, I, I yeah, like. yeah, yeah. Where did communism enter your, your psychological makeup? I guess when I was like a late teenager, I was like, I just started, I don't know when exactly, but I just like read, I can't, I, it was some book about some newspaper strike in like the early 20th century. And through that, I think I ended up reading like the the like Lenin. I think was the first one I read, and then the, through that Marx and all that other kind of shit. Why communism over socialism? Because I think it. Well, that's a complicated question, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I'm a communist because I believe that socialism would naturally progress towards communism. Could a podcast exist in a communist society that makes money? No. Hopefully not. Right. So you wouldn't give you'd, you'd sacrifice that. Absolutely, I would. Because the society yeah. would be better. Yes. Yeah. 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 I well, I mean, I just <laughs> that's not necessarily true. I mean, and we don't know what a communist society would look like, right? We well, you know what communist there, society have attempted. Yeah, we we know what like lower stage communist socialist societies have attempted, but like the Soviet Union wasn't a communist country or whatever. The, China has never been a communist country. They've they never like, pulled it off. They never pulled it off. Even they wouldn't say they pulled it off. They pulled off lower stage socialism, where like you know you have a very strong central government that controls. But, you know, many most aspects of the economy, but it's not like communized or anything like that. It has not reached like higher stage communism, which you know, is a whole thing I, I think about it's funny. that. It's funny that I'm sitting here asking you questions about this. I don't know, understand the question. I just need to get communism into the conversation. Gotcha. Because it's yeah, like, absolutely. it's part of like your thing. Yeah. Like it's part of what, like how you identify yourself. I know. Not true. Why not? Not true. Why is I it don't everywhere? do that. It's my political beliefs. But like for our instance, our show is I would never tell people it's a left wing or a communist podcast. It's a true crime podcast. I have my political opinions, but they're not like, and I express them through the show sometimes naturally as one would, but I don't, uh, I don't like, you know, it's not, you don't have to be a communist to listen to it or anything like that. Certainly not. And also, like, I know you are a dreamer like I am, and dreams are the greatest thing. And, like, I, I always think about, like, how horrible capitalism is yeah. because there's so many losers. 
And like, why sh- at this point in society, at this point in history, with wealth being as abundant and food being that easy to yeah. get, how could there not? Like, I think of it like Superman, Krypton. Every, nobody's worried about paying the rent, and there's yeah. information. Everyone's wearing a nice jumpsuit, and there's crystals for everybody. And yeah, there's yeah, money, yeah, and like, yeah. Why are we so far away from there? Is my is my big question. Well, I just I, I think that like. People deserve to reap the the benefits of their own labor, right? Like if people, if you make something and somebody doesn't make that thing, but they own the place that you do, how come they get most of the money? Like that never made sense to me. And I was always confused because like, except for one job I had, every other job I had, my boss made way more money than me, but they didn't do anything. They just yelled at me for being late. But that's also like, late stage capitalism yeah for, like like we're like being podcasters that can invent our own thing make money at it answer to nobody yeah like that's the raw but that's, shit but that's like so rare like we're we're lucky you know so what i mean lucky. there's a billion shows that like don't you know that, that nobody you know it's like someone's putting just as much effort into but like for whatever reason like people don't hear and so it's like that's the thing is like it's, it's capitalism has all of these sort of like stories of success that you can point to and like, look, this person came from nothing and now they're the CEO of whatever, whatever, what it's wheat green. I don't, that's probably guarantee that's not true. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I don't, I don't think that society should function like that. You know what I mean? It's just weird to me because the biggest class, right, is the working class of any country. Well, I guess there's probably some countries where there's, there's a poor like class. like yeah, but that's no. I would say of any country, the working class is is, is the absolute vast majority. Um, you know, some countries there's also a lot of peasantry or whatever farmers. Right. It's just crazy to me that the biggest class doesn't have has the smallest say in how society is run, and like these other class, like rich people, they get like complete almost dictatorial power, even under like the, the whatever democracy to make essentially all of the rules from the constitution to like local, you know, ordinances and shit like that. And it seems like, like naturally any class that is going to act out of its own interests, right? Like you're a fucking, you're Warren Buffett. All the shit you do is to benefit guys like you, Warren Buffett or the other Warren Buffett's out there. It makes sense. You're a working class person all the shit you're going to look out for is for, to help you and the other people, probably just you, because that's the way that society is kind of arranged. But like, you know, if you're class conscious, you'll help yourself and other people within your class. And it makes sense because most people are working class, right? And so it's like, I just think that most people, the majority of people in the world should basically get to dictate. How, and the people who make everything should get to dictate how the world is run. Right. And, and the issue is with the Warren Buffett's like, how can they be so selfish and greedy and and not yeah kind yeah and the, my, my I, I guess my problem with socialism as, as opposed to to, to communism not my problem with it but it's like for all of history right there's been like one tiny minority class ruling other classes and I'm like that doesn't that's crazy to me that that some people because of the where they're born or whatever get to make all the decisions and kind of get to run everything but the working class which is relatively new in terms of history is, you know, it's, it's emergence onto the, the class scene. Once that takes primary, like is, it takes primacy and is the, is the class that is driving society and in the driver's seat, then uh, that is something that's never happened in history before. There's never been a majority class that ruled. And so 
that is that would be unprecedented and it's a it's a dream it's a dream but it's it's also it's something that is well it's a dream but it's also it's happened in stages before and aborted and failed and blah because blah because of corruption yeah well because of a whole host of motherfucking reasons um but it's just I, and listen if there was something better to believe in i would believe in i don't want to believe in the stupid fucking politics i have i would much rather believe in something else but it's just i don't know how else to how did you stumble into drugs when you're when you've got these ideological you know like cuz your belief yeah. is is for people to have more freedom more yeah. rights more justice yeah. that's your belief and and most depolitical places really frown on drug use so how did Absolutely. So can you give us a little bit of that story? Well, I was just I mean, here's the thing is no matter what you believe in, nothing compares to oxycotton. Okay. I mean, you've done it, right? I've never done it. You never did it? No, I never did it. This is like being like I was the hippie in the 60s and I didn't make it a Woodstock. Well, I mean, I just did heroin. Oh, <laughs> I fair never, enough. I never, I never had like oxys. Like it's, I just got heroin. Oh my god! Well, I eventually got into that too, and I, I had a better time on. I guess I probably, I probably had a better time on oxycontin, but I was more addicted to heroin. But I'm, I'm, I definitely missed out. It was not around. You know, I got addicted to heroin in the late '90s, early 2000s, and then I yeah. was in LA, and heroin was just everywhere, cheap. I, I guess for me, it's like. I would betray any belief, anything I believed in, any any sort of f- anything, friends, family, whatever. Ideal. Ideal does not matter. You know, once once I I got into to dope and shit, I was everything else falls by the wayside. And for me too, like it's it's I think a lot of people seek like some sort of I mean, you see this a lot out of their politics. They seek some sort of like personal you know, growth or like to, to, to like some spiritual ascendancy or whatever through like, and they do that through their politics. And usually it's like this weird narcissistic thing where you can yell at people and like be holier than thou at people. I know I'm a bum, you know, there's, I'm not better than anybody else. And so that's never been like why I've liked politics or been, been interested in them. I, I, I have some deep personal problems that I was, I don't try to solve through politics, thankfully, but I did try to solve through dope. When was the first time you did any any drug? I was twelve years or eleven or twelve years old. I was with this kid Gordon, and we smoked salvia out of an apple next to this hill that later burned down, and I got arrested for. Not the same day, but you burned down the hill. I did not burn down the hill, but when I was a kid, a hill burned down, and it was a hill that we used to kind of smoke weed near, and it was my friend that burned it down. But I got How do you burn down a hill, though? That's that's because we were playing with fireworks. And (laughs) he burned his hand, and he threw the firework onto this dry grass. And you know, like, how hills in California get this. It seems like it's cold. Everything's burning. Everything's burning. And so we sort of of were a little ahead of the trend and decided to get people ready for the massive wildfires that would take place 20 years later. And uh, this hill just completely burned down. And... We used to hang out in this abandoned hardware store, and I had written brace rules on the wall. Nice. And uh, I was brought into the police station. They had, like, big photos of my graffiti. Graffiti, as they called it. And so I got busted for everything and uh, got put on probation and all that kind of shit. So that was post-first salvia? That was, like, within a month of smoking salvia. I had been arrested. It's interesting, salvia over weed first time. We couldn't get weed yet, but we were able to get weed shortly after. He would, there's, like, he went to a store to buy the salvia? 
I, he went into a a like whatever like a store that sold seeds and shit. I, I, it's like I've smoked salvia like three times. Is is salvia it's, synthetic weed? No, it's what like a it? seed or something, and it makes you. Have you ever smoked it? I don't know. It sucks, dude. It's like, I don't know. It's like weeds DMT. It makes you like see ants everywhere and like. But it's it, a real plant. It's a real plant. Yeah, like it's like a some kind of plant. You can plant it. I don't know what it looks like when it's grown up, but I've only seen it in its germinal state. And it doesn't do good. Doesn't do good for it your doesn't, brain. It gets you high, but not in a way that I would describe as like a fun experience. And I read now to quickly change subjects to something horrible. Yeah, I read that your mom killed herself mm-hmm. when you were six. Yes. Yeah. My mom. Um, my mom was a drug addict. Uh, it I, that sounds like a mean thing to say to phrase Why it like not? that. Why? Well, my mom was a dick. My mom, my mom had issues with substances. It's just mean to say that's the first thing about your mother. My mom was a drug addict. My mom was a drug addict. Um, what did she do? She did a lot of coke. She okay. was a cokehead. Um, San Francisco. San Francisco, and uh, and she had str- like a lot of struggles that I didn't understand. I think until I was older, but she struggled with like mental stuff i think really really bad depression who knows what else and she uh she killed herself when i was when i was six and i didn't really understand that i guess i don't know how to phrase that but like i didn't really i didn't really like get the i didn't understand that she had done it herself i knew she had died and i was able to kind of comprehend that she was no we weren't going to see her anymore but i was six and so six-year-old doesn't have like the greatest it creates it creates a weird narrative that you can't possibly unpack. Exactly. And so I didn't really understand it until like four years, until I was like 10 years old. Like, oh, she like made this decision on her own. It's not like something that happened to her. And when you trace back like drug addiction or yeah. like substance, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It's like you you started out with a huge like strike against you, right? Like a huge like like I grew up in this house. Yeah. And my mom was was she's my mom is dead too, but she died much later. She died yeah. at 64 from leukemia. She was very controlling, but she loved me. Yeah. And and I don't know what strikes were against me and I yeah, ended up yeah. in the same spot. I didn't burn down a hill when I was 11. I didn't like I didn't either. Oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. So when it, how painful are your teen years with this tragedy hanging over your head? Well, it was weird because I think, and I did this, I do this a lot in my life. I think once I sort of realized what had happened and like got that this was like a big incident, I was like, I'm just never going to think about this again. Right. And this doesn't affect me. Put it in a box. I put it in a box. Like this doesn't affect me. Like I don't really remember her because when you, you, by the time you're six, you're like, that's when you're kind of developing memories. And so I have very few memories of my mother prior to being six years old. And so, uh, or at all, that would mean. And so I like, uh, I, I basically just told myself like, this doesn't affect me. This will have no effect on my life. And like, you know, I, this is sad that this happened, but like, it's almost like it happened to somebody else. My father had remarried at that point. I mean, he had remarried, they were divorced since I was like two. Oh, um, they weren't together. They weren't together. No. Um, and, uh, Who found her? Uh, I think we had, it was like a babysitter that was like coming so to like, sad. I'm yeah. really sorry. Like, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you know how you have to say you're sorry, exactly. but I but I am sorry. That's a horrible thing. Well, and it's like, I think for a long time, I shut myself off to any sort of feeling about it, whether anger or empathy or anything. And I still, I've never felt anger about it because there's not 
enough for me to be angry at. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think she would have killed herself unless she was in immense, immense, immense pain. And uh, I have empathy. I mean, I've known many people that have killed themselves since then, and most of them were in really horrible pain. Horrible pain. And so, um, I. But but I think the the more damaging aspect is I told myself like it didn't affect me at all. And it like looking back and understanding kind of now with a little bit of maturity, I'm like, oh, it definitely affected my relationships with other people, especially women. And, uh, and your relationship with the world, it's yeah. like this weird temporary existence, this understanding, but, but being able to compartmentalize shit is a, is a fucked up, it's yeah. a, it could be a helpful tool and it could be a not so helpful. Yeah, exactly. And it ha exactly. Yeah. And so like, it has been throughout my life, something that actually has like, I think saved my sanity quite a bit, but it's also been something that's like, uh, like that compartmentalization has prevented me from like understanding myself fully. But being able, I was I'm able to like sort of lie to myself and be like, I get, I'm, you know, I'm actually pretty on top of things because I don't feel something about whatever incident that I've compartmentalized. But that's like coping. It's yeah. like, it's like it's super survival instinct. You're a kid, you lose your mom and you need to get through your life. You develop these weird instincts and that's what you, you did. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It, your story is insane though, because when, when does it become harder drugs? So I... It's hard. I'm like, I can't really remember exactly. So when I was 12, I started like drinking beer and smoking cigarettes and smoking weed. I always hated weed. It makes me psycho, but it was around. So I smoked it. And I was like, uh, maybe I'll eventually smoke. It's like cigarettes. First time you smoke a cigarette, it's not fun, horrible, but you just got to keep smoking cigarettes. Yes. And I was like, maybe it's like that with weed was never like that, but I still did it. Um, it's all brain chemistry. It's amazing. I know. It's, it's crazy because like, it, it helps like it helps some people like feel relaxed. And, oh, like, I, I didn't have a bad day. I did not have a bad experience yeah. on weed. And, 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 and it's like, right. It's like, it's like people who can enjoy Coke. Like I could Same. never, I could never enjoy Coke. I did it. I did all it too, the time, but I could but never, enjoy never had a good time. And you didn't like benzos. I hated benzos, and I and I loved them. I didn't love meth. Meth made me very uncomfortable. I didn't love meth either, but it felt good to do it. <laughs> it felt good to do meth. It didn't feel good to be on meth. Okay, so when when so talk about like as much as you can because yeah. I have the same memory shit that you. Yeah, did. yeah, and we and we can. You don't need to tell anybody. You just put it together as best you can, and that'll, that'll be real enough. So I, I first, I mean, I was drinking and smoking weed and smoking cigarettes, but intermittently, because when you're 12, it's hard to get that shit. You know, you'd steal it from people's parents. We knew some older kids who would, still not 21, but you could shoulder tap easier as a 16-year-old than as a 12-year-old. What's know? shoulder tap? That's like, uh, they call it different things, different places, but it's like you hang out in front of the, like the gas station. You're like, you're like hey, hey, man, could you hey. get me? Yeah. They call it like, hey, mister, some places. They call it some, yeah. It's, nice. But you basically just like, you're like, hey, can you give me a beer? And which is crazy because I used to do that all the time as a kid. I've never had that happen to me as an adult. Not that once. Is, that is very interesting. Because I would buy it for them. What does it mean? Would you at this point? I would buy if a 15-year-old was like, hey, man, can you get me a fucking, like, they don't really have that many 40s anymore. But it's like, hey, can you probably, it depends on what can he asked for. Can you get me a white claw, please? If it was a can white you get claw, me a mango, like, nah, can you happen. get me a mango white claw? Not going to happen, my brother. Can you get me a, a, a flask of Tito's? We drank, we drank, I remember the first beer I drank was a Mickey's hand grenade. Uh, walk into this punk club, or not punk club, it was like a rock club called The Pound in Hunter's Point uh, in, in San Francisco. 
And I was like, this is incredible. This bottle shaped so good. It's shaped like a hand grenade. It tastes, it's definitely different than other things I've drank in my life. But like, I like the way it made me feel. And I was like, this is so sick. I should just do this all the time. I should drink all the time. But I, I just, I couldn't because I was you know, 12. I got sent away when I was like 13. So you're like a real uh, alcoholic. What do you, I don't have real, I mean, come on. You like drinking. I don't, yeah, I, I, I. Yes, you but didn't I don't, like, you don't like to be called a real alcoholic. It's funny because I don't really think I think like I'm like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, but I really I love heroin. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's like I could if you give me a chance, if you give me you're like you could do consequence free. Actually, that's not true, but I would choose heroin or dope anything over alcohol basically under any circumstance. But you had the you had but the I classic had the experience. you had a classic alcoholic experience. Well, you know you know how people talk about like I, the first time I like did coke, I felt like I had arrived. Of course, the first time I drank, I felt a little bit like I'd arrived. But then the first time I started doing like like opiates, I was like, this is I gotta feel like this hundred percent of the time. When was the first time you did opiates? I think when I was like fifteen or sixteen. Wow, uh, See, in, that's early. I went to a well. I went to so I got sent away when I was like thirteen. And then when I got back, I was like not allowed to go back to the regular high school. So they sent me to the continuation high school, which is like, I don't know if they have, I think they have them other places, but like, it's like a public school, but like for fuck ups, for fuck ups. So here it's called city as. Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay. like, it's like when you're a fucked up punk rock, Yeah, these fucked up arty, usually pretty cool kids that can't hack it. They go to city as. Well, so they sent the arty kids that were like kind of smart to this other one, this other like continuation school, but they sent like the the stupid bad kids to the one I what went. What was to, it called? San Andreas, and you could smoke cigarettes there. That was like kind of what it was famous in for. the classes. Not in the classes, but you could like walk out of class and smoke a cigarette. There was ashtrays at school. That was okay. They ended that while I was there, but yeah. Was, was there like trade trade school and stuff? No, there was there was no homework. If you had a job, you didn't have to go to school, but because you, you got credits for work, which I did. Uh, Where did you work then? I worked at uh, Tank Crimes Records, a record label that was out of my friend's garage. Awesome. And I made but I mean, it wasn't really like, I worked there, but like. You didn't make money. I made buttons and it was like a way to get out of school. Was it like a button making machine? It was a button making machine. And so I only had to go to school for three hours a day and there do was no homework. Do you have truant on pins? No. We should make them. We should make them. Definitely. Yeah. Wait, do we? No. I don't think we do. I'd like a truant on Yeah. And I bet I, you the crowd. We should. Because you just have like a, tea, a T on a black pin. And it's like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know I would, I mean? We have a little guy as our logo. I feel like people would like that. All right. But I just did that. Like I made like discharge pins instead of going to school. And I got credit for it. And I only had to go to school for like a year and a half. So I only have like two and a half years of high school, maybe three. Uh, and I graduated at seven, graduated at 17. But by that time, I had like access to like. Vicodin and Percocet. And then when I was like 17, I moved out. And that's when I found out that you could just buy Oxycontin. And how much were you make? How are you paying for all of it? I worked. So when I graduated high school, I got a job at a flower shop. I worked at a lot of flower shops. You did? A lot. No oh, shit. A lot. Me too. A Everyone lot. always is like, that's weird you worked at flower shop. It's not weird. Maybe it is weird, but we're probably similar kinds of weird. Oh, I was horrible at it. I did it for so long. I worked at three different ones. I was one of the worst floors in America. I think I worked at three or four. I worked in every time I would get into recovery, uh, like like halfway 
rehab yeah. shit, I would show up at the flower shop. Yeah, yeah. And it was always these ladies that smoked Virginia Slims. Yeah. And all the foam. Everyone's smoking cigarettes at flower shops. It's great. I never worked at a flower shop. Did you smoke shop. cigarettes? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I still do, but now I, 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 I vape also because you can do it inside. It's winter, you know. Dude, um, you smoke still? Yeah. What do you smoke? Uh, I smoke Marble Reds. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. That's they taste good. Well, the thing is, I used to smoke Marlboro Lights because I read in an article in like Time Magazine when I was like, I don't know, 18, that they're the most popular cigarette in the world. And so I was like, I could buy these no matter where I end up. But I really never made it out of San Francisco. Well, so you chose them because you knew they'd be available. So Anywhere. you might as well have what you like available. Exactly. Yeah. Or did you ever, like, I smoked Marlboro Reds for 20 years. Yeah. And when I'd get a Marlboro Light, what I would do is I would take a scissor and I would trim cut the, a little yeah. bit off the filter and you can make it a medium or a red or cut it way down. I used to sometimes, uh, like, bite the filter out with my teeth and then just smoke it sort of filterless with a little bit of the paper in there so the tobacco didn't get in my mouth. I fucking loved smoking. I loved smoking. And you know what? You still do love smoking. Are you struggling with <laughs> I it? I don't love it anymore. Now I got to quit. I got to quit. Because the vaping shit is not. That's This is poison. Where this does is the white vaping, claw to me. Where does the this vaping is white claw. fit into all of the, the um, conspiracy theories? <laughs> Cauliflower, There's, popcorn lung. God, well, the popcorn lung thing was fucking weed. <laughs> but... It's just, it, it makes it like, I don't, when I, so with the cigarettes, you're smoking a cigarette, you got to go outside or you're smoking in your apartment like a bum, uh, but you got to go outside and it's like, there's a thing you have to do. With vaping, it's part of this instant shit. You can get it anytime, anywhere, do it any, you know. And I loved smoking. Me, oh, me too. Loved it, loved it. But when I, I, when I got back with my daughter's mother and my daughter, it just, it's too much. I couldn't laugh without coughing. I yeah. couldn't laugh without coughing. Yeah. That was the thing. I waited tables. And I would smoke between every customer. Oh God, yeah. Which I really loved. It was my time. All well, that that's shit. the other thing is it work now that I now that I work for myself. Like now that <laughs> yeah. now, like the other thing about cigarettes is you basically it's like being disabled. Like if you like work at a place, they're like, oh, he's got to go smoke, right? You know what I mean? Or he'll get angry, right? He'll get agitated. Well, it's also like, what's wrong with him? Yeah. But you work for yourself. You can smoke. I can smoke. That but might make, make it harder to even quit. Even so, yeah. It's just also, well, they also told me when I first got sober, like, don't quit smoking. And that's not that's really stuck. a rule or anything. That's, that's probably a guy that smoked a lot of cigarettes came up with that. No, it's hard. It's very hard to hard. quit everything and then quit smoking. Well, it's been a while. I know. And so I just, you have more. Yeah. I think you have more time than I do. How long do you have? I, I got sober. We got. I got sober in 2015. Oh yeah, 2014. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, but you don't have children. No. I have children. Yeah. So I, I can't smoke. I'm saying. I'm not saying defending smoking. No, I'm defending you smoking a little bit, and I'm also enjoying the euphoric recall of the flower shop smoking oh, in the flower God. shop. So the butts burning in the ashtray. I I worked at a stand, a flower stand that's still around. Brothers Papadopoulos, 19th Quintar, San Francisco. Great flowers. Seven ninety nine a dozen roses. Great deal. But I worked there for a long time. Still seven ninety nine. Still seven ninety nine. Fine deal. Now, I, my old boss texted me, asked me to work Valentine's Day a few days ago in San Francisco. In, he, I don't think he knows I moved to New York. It's clearly but not. I still worked there up until like four years ago intermittently, like very rarely, but still sometimes, like on holidays and shit like that. But uh, I was so bad at it. But it was like a job that my friends worked at. And like, you know, it wasn't very busy. So I just like smoked cigarettes and drank coffee and like 
you know, hung out with people. And so, yeah. Were you good with the flowers names? I was not. Me neither. Me too. I thought I'd be an expert. I didn't retain anything. And now, and especially, and I'm sure you know, if you, if you're, if you start, you know, you, you speak to women when you work at a flower shop, they think, oh, this guy's going to know so much about flowers. And I don't know anything about flowers. I'm the same way. And I thought I would. Yeah. I thought I'd pick something up. Like just, it would just somehow I'd get it. But no, no, I know what an iris is. I know what an iris is. I know what a Gerber daisy is. Me too. A rose. Yep. A daisy. A daisy. Um, I know Tulips. hydrangea. Oh, they're, yeah. Because they're where I live. They're and I like hydrangeas. Beautiful A lot flowers. of people don't. They People always say old lady flowers. Guess what? I like old ladies. Hydrangeas are beautiful. They're beautiful. And the bushes, they're like clouds. Exactly. How did you pay for your opiates? So I don't want to get caught point, I don't no, want to lose you. So at this point, I'm 18. I'm getting paid uh, under the table. I don't know. You know, whatever minimum wage was in San Francisco, but under the table. And I wasn't that deep into it. I mean, 18 years old, I was like just drinking a lot and then like doing pills sometimes. And then I moved into this apartment temporarily. I don't know why, but like I kind of got kicked out of my apartment. Not because I did something. My roommate was a really bad alcoholic and uh, much older than me. And she and I just did not get along. She kicked me out. For what? uh, For being too young to live there. I think she felt weird that I wasn't 21, but I was drinking all the time. How old was she? She was like 30 something, I think. Um, (laughs) And you're playing in a band? (laughs) I'm playing a band. Yeah. Oh yeah. I played in a band this whole time. I was playing in a hardcore like punk band. Was that war? War crime. War crime. (laughs) With a K. And and the, the just so Dopey Nation understands this, War Crime was a punk band that believed that war was the answer. Well, well that was like we we the stick. I, I as I'm sure many people understand, sometimes when you're young, <laughs> you feel that you want to get attention, and you realize the easiest way to get attention is through negative attention. It's a great gimmick. Well, and we were also like, listen, we're not that good at our instruments, so if we have a gimmick. And our whole thing was like suicidal tendencies at one point, they had to like disown their fans because they were too rowdy and violent and meatheaded. And we're like, we want to have to at some point disown the people that like our, our band. And uh, so we just like played up this whole like kind of, we were like heels. That was like our whole thing. We like, we're like, we're doing the kind of a heel thing. You were like a villainous punk rock exactly. band. Like yeah. gore. Well, yeah, yeah. Without we like, the costume. Without, yeah, and, and, and without the success. Right. Well, no, we were, we actually made it all right for in, in our little scene. Yeah. We did pretty good. But like, we, we put out a few records and like toured a bunch and blah, blah. blah. But like, uh, but I was like, became sort of like a no, known like as a little shithead. A ne'er-do-well. A ne'er-do-well, like a young ne'er-do-well. Ne'er-do-well like, of, the, of, the, of the communist punk rock scene in San Francisco. Well, it wasn't, I, was, I don't think, I don't think, I, people thought I was like a Nazi and stuff because I'd wear like a dress with a swastika on it and like. Um, a dress. A dress. Nice. Yeah. Well, because I was like, listen, well, I was like 15 when I did that. You're but willing to go as far as you could go. I would just wanted uh, to people to listen to our band. And I was like, the easiest way to do that is if I make them angry and then they'll have to know who we are and then go to our shows to get pissed off. Like, oh, yeah, war crime. That's the with the swastika dress yes. guy. That ended up backfiring <laughs> because we got like some tours canceled or some shows on our tour canceled. Someone broke all our records in Amoeba, blah, mm. blah. But it ended up being... Uh, on the whole, it was actually a pretty successful strategy. So you have a little bit of money. You're living with this 30-something person who's yeah. like, why is this weird Jewish kid with a skinhead dress, yes. swastika dress? She, well, I was I was, I was, was just like a little punk at that time. But yeah, she, yeah. She, kicked, she kicked me out. I ended up moving up the street. I lived in the Tenderloin. 
I ended up moving up the street elsewhere in the tender, like three blocks away on Geary Boulevard. And at that point, I lived with this guy who's like a little garage rock guy. And he turned me on to this Oxycontin stuff. He would like, he had no job and I was working and I was working a lot. So you supported him. So, well, I was like, I actually, in retrospect, I'm like, fuck, I feel really bad about this. But I would like buy oxys from this guy that he introduced me to. I think he introduced me to this old Egyptian dope dealer named Dr. Something, but he wasn't a real doctor. Um, he was like 65 year old Egyptian guy. I wish I could hear his name. What is uh, his name? Z, just Z. I mean, that's not Dr. Really Z. Dr. Z. Yeah. Nice. We go to Dr. Z and, uh, I would buy oxys. And at that point they were pretty cheap. It was like, it was before the, the price really went up on them. And he, I would like buy a couple of Oxycontin eighties and he would do stuff like he'd have like uh, a couple of soft boys records, you know, records that are worth some money. And he'd be like, like the, like, you know, the first press or whatever of them. And he would like trade me these records and I'd give him an oxy. And then eventually I was like, I need all these oxy. Like, you got to deal with your own shit. And, uh, but you had all those records. You started selling the records. Uh, eventually I sold the records. Uh, but at this point I was still working consistently. And so at that point I was like 18. I was living in an apartment with this guy. And, you know, I was, I was drinking a lot. I was going to shows every, as much as I could, going to the bar every night. And I was doing pills. And I would, I had a little portable DVD player. It's like 2007, 2008. Uh, I had a little portable DVD player and I would go to Gramophone Video, the last video store in San Francisco where the, this guy from this band, The Cuts, worked at. Because he would, and he would, C-O-C-U-T-S. And he would give me a deal on my late feasts. And I would rent DVDs and I would take Oxycontin. I would lay in my little fucking shitty Wait, bed. Wait, what was the deal? He would, he would like help me out with the late fees. I, it was him and some other guy I knew worked there too. Cause I would always be like a couple days late on that shit. And I would go, I rent the, and I would go to the library a lot. I would rent DVDs and I would take, I was like kind of my little vacation away from everything. Cause I was doing a lot of Coke and I was drinking a lot, but I was like, fuck, I really like this Oxy stuff, but it makes me kind of antisocial and like, okay with just being by myself at home. And so like, I don't really like that, but like, I like the way that I feel on these a lot. Like I feel like I feel like I should feel. And watching movies on opiates in that period, oh, it's like the greatest, the greatest thing. thing. Cause you go, you're in that movie. You're, you're like, it might as well be your life. It's every movie is the greatest movie you've ever seen. You always, and I don't watch movies on my own. Really. I don't watch a lot of, I never didn't grow up watching TV. Never really liked movies. And I mean, I grew up watching the Saturday morning cartoons, but I never really got into TV. And this made it so like, I'm like cool, just like hanging out in my bed, watching something. It's like how weed makes some people feel. I was like, I can just like kind of chill here and like eat a burrito and like watch a fucking old movie. Opiates and weed made me feel like that. Yeah. hundred percent. I want to know about you and Dr. Z. What was that relationship like? Well, he lived in this SRO, like a single room occupancy hotel. And on uh, like the sixth floor, and of course no elevator, and, and the place always stunk. SROs stink. Oh yeah, they always got, and they always smell like weird wet bread. It smells like 1978. Yes, and I would go up there, and he lived in this tiny little room, and there was always I just remember it was like so much like fake velvet shit around. It was always really dark in there, no matter how bright it was outside. And he'd be in there, and there'd always be some like you know some junky girl, like you know really like desiccated. 50-year-old junkie woman sitting on the bed, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. nodding or smoking cigarettes. And uh, he would always be, like, blitzed out of his mind. On some, I don't think he was on. I mean, he was on opiates, but he was, like, on something. He was probably tweaking, too. And he was always, he had this crazy, kind of looked like Gollum. Like, he was short, you know, this kind of, like, 
thinning hair and this this massive paunch, but the rest of him was very skinny. And he'd wear these wife beaters and uh, and smoke a cigarette. And he would uh, like he was just constantly chain smoke. And he would uh, sell you pills, but he would do that thing where he'd try to hang out with you too. So sometimes you'd like have to watch like something with him or like listen to a song or like. Did you like any aspect of hanging out with Dr. Z? I cannot say that I did, but it was always something crazy always happened. I remember at one point he was shooting pigeons out of his window <laughs> with a gun with the no with an air rifle or okay. whatever like a or like not like a bb gun but something with more like pressure like a pellet gun, like or, a something. Pellet gun yeah. or something because it was killing the pigeons and he went to jail for that he was always in and out of jail uh and and uh my friend once saw him stab a woman with a samurai sword but oh, i wasn't there for that that's crazy what what did your dad do my dad was a uh tv news writer my whole life so he worked actually very close to where I lived. Uh, he worked on, on Van Ness at just like local TV stations. He did all right, though. He did all right, yeah. I, I mean, I grew up here. Like both my parents were uh, teachers. Yeah. You know, like whatever, like middle class, yeah. fantasy, whatever. And I, I had a guy like that. And I just remember like feeling like I had stumbled into a world that was not my world. But yeah. I was really kind of kind of excited to be there but also kind of discuss like i liked yeah. it i, I like that it was something that i was totally alien to me well the thing is and I, I think a lot of people i i thought it was just me that did this but then going to like recovery stuff and rehab i realized that a lot of people do this i always would be like if something really fucked up was happening i would always sort of like not disassociate but like go out of body and be like this is happening to like somebody i'm like kind of observing this happen and so, like, no matter what bad situation I put myself in, it's like I could be like, this is like an interesting thing that I'm observing, right, you know, right. and I could sort of I could take this like this really um, detached view from it as a way to cope with it, as a way to compartmentalize it. I was ended up in a lot of weird, bad situations, not really with Dr. Z. I mean, he was just like one of a, several kind of colorful dope dealers that I had and my first one. But, uh, yeah, I would always kind of just be like, well, this is an interesting thing to, like, observe. What are you, think, what are you thinking of when you, when you even say that? Just, like, him just, like, staring at me in the eyes and, like, rambling for, like, 10 minutes while I have, like, a bag of pills in my pocket and being like, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here and do these. And then later, just, like, I got in some really weird situations when I was, like, a junkie junkie, like, shooting dope How stuff. far away from... Oxy, how much were Oxy 80s from Dr. Z? I can't really, I was actually thinking about this the other day. I don't, I have my old journal here, uh, but I don't talk, I was like, I didn't, I was afraid of someone finding it and finding out that I was doing a lot of pills. And so I, I only really talk about it like after like a year. How many journals do you have? I have a lot. I've kept a journal my whole life. You still do? Yeah, I still Amazing. do. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so most of this is just about drinking, but like, you got a, You got an excerpt from 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 a period you'd like to share. I mean, a lot of it. I mean, the thing is, some of it's just like personal about friends and stuff. This is just. I just flipped to a random page. Saturday, June thirteenth, two thousand nine. Woke up at five in the morning and puked. Uh, <laughs> last night was bizarre. Uh, and then there's a bunch of shit. This one just says huge pencil again. This thing is massive. It's a giant pencil. Hit him in the head. Headbutt. Bob Dylan. Need him in the groin. That was about a fight I got in. Uh, also written with a big pencil, so it's about half the page. Did you did you get into a fight over Bob Dylan? No, hopefully what's, not. What's the I Bob would never. What's the I may Bob? probably probably listen to Bob Dylan a lot. I feel awful. Chest, stomach feels like something's really wrong. I got to get it together. 
Tell us about the transition between Oxy-80s and Horrible Junkie. So Oxy-80s were relatively cheap at that time. And then they changed the formula to make it so you couldn't shoot them, which I didn't shoot them. I just snorted them or bit them. And they so Oxycontin shot up in price. You could really only get Oxycodone, like the, the like hard pills, which are very... Time release, whatever. Time release yeah. ones, exactly. So you couldn't get that sort of euphoric whatever Rush. from snorting it. And then eventually they shot up in price so much. It's so stereotypical, but just like everybody else, I was like, oh, wait, I can do heroin and it's like $10 to get high, uh, which it is at first, even though I had a tolerance from pills. I remember the first time I was really dope sick, my band went up to play in Portland and work, work. Right? No, I was at this point. I was in like kind of a garage rock punk band. Called, you played bass. I played bass called wild thing. And we went out to Portland and played, and I was like, why am I puking and want to kill myself? Like, I, because I, I, it didn't connect to me that I could be dope sick, even though I'd been doing Oxycontin every day for like a year. And I, because I had enough money to like keep myself in it, but I just, I was like, I'm not going to do them on this trip or whatever. And uh, I was just really fucking sick, and I just drank through it. But How uh, old do you think you were on that time? I was probably 19. Right. So you, you, you're 20 like, maybe? You're like, I could use a break. Yeah. So I'm not going to bring any pills on this trip. Exactly. And then you get sick. Do you realize that you're in withdrawal on the trip? Yes. Yeah. I'm like, oh, shit. Because I'd had like withdrawal before, but I'd never had it that bad. And I think it was also because I couldn't get it. I didn't know how to get it up there. And so it was just like, and I was in the situation where like no one else, no one really knew. I mean, my friends wouldn't have cared really because they were all had their own issues. But like. And you hadn't made the decision, I'm going to be a fucking junkie. No. I, and I always thought. Like so many people, I always thought that like, I'm not a junkie. Like, I'm just kidding. You know, I'm like, just a kid. Oh, uh, yeah. And like, well, I'm just fucking around. You know, like, I'm just I'm just joking. Like, I'm not really a junkie. And but then if I like really got honest with myself, I'd be like, well, but like, you know, Lou Reed was a junkie. You know, he fucking wasn't really a junkie. I just thought he was. He was not really. Dude. He was a junkie for meth. For meth. He, he 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 fucked around with heroin. He yeah. liked to write about it, but he was he was fucking a fucking speed freak. Bad though. I know, but still, it's I was a speed You're freak. You're very too. disappointed with. I him. was just like, what the fuck? It's man? a little disappointing because I was doing heroin, thinking I was going to be Lou Reed. It's a little disappointing. And I've done more. I guarantee you, I've done more heroin than Lou Reed you ever did. Think so? Absolutely, that's I an did. amazing claim. He didn't do that much heroin. Had it, but how can you really quantify the amount? You can easily, they have scales for it. You can so easily quantify the amount of heroin. That Lou Reed did? They sell it in points. I get you can quantify how much heroin <laughs> you did, but how do you quantify how much heroin Lou Reed did? I can just tell by looking at him. You don't think he did he that He didn't much. do enough. Not enough. Not, well, he maybe he did enough. And he was said, I have, I've done. But I can tell if a guy likes speed that much, and heroin was never really It was for not him. for him. Because you, you, we were talking earlier, you don't like meth, but you still did it? Yeah. I don't like meth, and I still did it. You think he felt like that about heroin? Exactly. It's, He's like, I, I dig it all right, but I prefer this other stuff. His brain chemistry was definitely geared towards meth. Yes, absolutely. Mine is geared towards heroin. My Mine was geared towards anything that wasn't an upper. Like I like benzos, yeah. I, weed, and heroin. I, I, I talk about it too much. But yeah, yes. I don't, I don't, yeah. For me, it was always just like heroin is yeah. the greatest thing it's in the world. It's amazing. I really like benzos with heroin because it, it, it dumbed me down even yeah, more. I yeah. needed serious dumbing down. I Same. Well, I didn't need it. But I don't I mean it. that I was smart. I just felt so good yeah. the dumber I was. Yeah. It's just like I less intrusive thoughts. I remember the first time I did heroin was actually in that apartment I lived in. I was writing an article for Maximum Rock and Roll. 
about it was for their health issue nice. and i was going to do every drug as much as possible in one week and then write about the effects of my body that's awesome well i didn't write about the effects of my body but i did do every drug as much as possible what did in one you do week. i well everything except i didn't do i couldn't get dmt or pcp i did everything else but i spent a week as fucked up as well, you possible did mushrooms mushrooms LSD, acid heroin meth coke crack you know, poppers, weed, uh, poppers. Oh yeah, Animal I was always nitrate. doing. I was always doing poppers. What did they look like? They're like little. Bo- they look, kind of look like those five-hour energy drinks. They're and like you, little and, bottles. And you drink them, or you shoot nah, up your nose? No, do not drink poppers. They no, are. How do you open them? Uh, I you, never... just, you open. It's just screw it off, and then you huff it. You know, you just sometimes you can put in a rag and huff the rag, but you don't want to put it on your skin because it'll burn you. I never. What is it? What is it? It's like? for gay dudes. Too. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't really get. To be for real. I don't really get how they use them because I know it's supposed to open your butt hole up to make it easier to have anal sex. Yes. But I'd, I'd always be like, is my ass feel different? Like, are they put it, but are they, are they put it, are they? No, they're sniffing them and, and then, then and their butt opens. Because I remember reading about that in the basketball diaries when I was like 15. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's doing poppers the first yeah, time yeah, yeah. he's getting his ass fucked. Yes. And I was like, but I, and I got into them because my buddy Scott uh, he liked fucking your ass. No, no, but he was, you know, he liked fucking ass, and he had a uh, he had all these vintage poppers, and he gave me a bottle kind of as a gift, and I did it. And I was like, oh, this is incredible. You just, well, how does it make you feel? It doesn't make you feel that good. It just kind of makes you feel like it's kind of like it's. I would say it's in the realm of the whippet, but different. Because whippet is like nitrous. Yeah, it's not as like totally disassociative as whippet. Is a popper the amyl nitrate? Nitri- amyl nitrate, yeah. Nitrate. So it's probably in the same family. Maybe like sniffing the glue night, or night, something. The night family. The night family, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's like sniffing. But all my friends, San Francisco Bay Area, and all of us just did pop. At every show, everyone's doing poppers all the time. I didn't even realize it was a gay thing that much. I thought it was just a thing to get high with. Well, here, meth is just a gay thing. Well, everywhere it is. But not when I was in LA, it, we were. I mean, meth well, was everywhere. Me, same, and but it was not. It wasn't gay meth. Well, in New York City, they like, don't have tweakers like we have tweakers on the West Coast. Exactly, they have crackheads. They have here. crackheads, but, but we, not even the same it's way. It's not even the same way. I wonder why that it's is. Too cold. But what? Why? I don't know. I, I don't know either. It's because well, they arrested all of them in like the early two thousands. It's really. But, I I really would like to know why there's only tweakers in the West Coast. Do you think it's a weather thing? I think I kind of think it's a weather thing. It's must sucked, dude. Imagine being on meth and it's snowing. That's horrible. 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 But on meth and you're like on the sunny, endless plains of Los Angeles with just like a, a dim f- haze over everything. You don't and, have to worry about anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not going to rain. Uh, it's not going to rain. You'll you just be all right. Keep wa- and there's endless sidewalks to walk down and nobody else on them. Right. You can go fucking crazy and no one's going to go near you. Exactly. Here, everybody's it's everywhere. It's too close. Yeah. It's too close. All right. So let's the get crackhead, the, the, the tweaker needs to run free on the plains. I'm with you. Let's get back to uh, you're, you're just things are just starting to get bad. Things are starting oh, that to get weak. Maximum rock and roll. So, How yeah. did you write so, for Maximum Rock and Roll? I wrote for them since I was like 17. I wrote like a monthly column. Do they still exist? No, no. But um, it was a big part of my life. I hung out at their office a lot. You know, it was, it was uh, I'm very grateful for that experience. But with the drug thing, I, I, I did. I was the first time I did heroin. And I remember I went to my friend's apartment. He was shooting it. He shot it. You smoked the tar? I, I smoked it, I guess. Yeah, I smoked it off a of foil, I would assume. Or you can snort the liquid, too. So I might have done that, but I feel like I would have smoked it in that situation. And I was like, oh, this is so much cheaper and so much better. And I can just buy it in the Tenderloin. You can just buy it on the street. Like, people, you just walk cheap. by it cheap. 
And cheap, people would just say, cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. And you're like, all right, yeah, here you go. And uh, so I started doing that. And I was just like, well, I'm just going to snort it. I'm just going to, or then eventually it became, I'm just going to smoke it. And then I started playing in this band with this guy who's a taxi driver and he used to drive around this fucking uh, heroin dealer who had MS, multiple sclerosis, named Jacques. And Jacques, uh, I would go in the cab and we'd kind of all drive around together and he would, like, we would, Jacques would sell dope to people. Like, he'd make house calls to people and sell. He had really good heroin. Nice. And uh, through that, I was like, I started doing it all the time. And it just became my life. Like, that was just the only thing I ever thought about, the only thing I ever did. Do you I, remember crossing the line in that? I don't remember a specific. I remember the first time I shot it. And that felt like, that was the first time it felt like I was really crossing a line. Who were you with? I was with this kid. I, I think his name was... Travis or Trevor or something. He was kind of like a running partner I had for a second. A dude I met who was just like another little skinny white kid who was buying dope. And he lived in the Tenderloin too. And uh, he was shooting. And I was afraid to hit because I was like, I don't, I'm going to fuck this up. And uh, he hit with, he hit me up and kind of taught me how to do it. And I was like, oh, this is like different. This is like, I'm not playing. I'm not playing at this. This is a whole thing. Even though I had been straight up addicted to heroin for at that point for like a year and a half or a year. Uh, but it was like, now this is like, there's no like cope you can do with that. I, you are shooting heroin and like junkies are such good fucking liars, no matter what, even if you're a moron in every aspect of your life, if you're a junkie, you can lie to yourself with with the like ability of a god. It's amazing how much you can lie to yourself. Amazing. It's like a whole other thing. But it's really hard to come up with a lie that gets around the fact that you're injecting heroin into your arm. Being um, so into music and the music scene yeah. and the music culture, how much is being an IV heroin addict in your punk rock career, in your maximum rock and roll yeah. career, in the mythology well, of that's, the culture. That's the thing is like, you know, growing up in the 2000s as somebody who liked punk, you're really, what you're doing is almost like play acting a little bit on some level of what you think punk should be. I mean, you're like that naturally because you're drawn to it or whatever, but like you are like retreading always like ground that has been tread before, almost always. Well, but like what isn't? Exactly, what isn't? No, I'm not saying I mean, this even, is a, even if you're like, you know, a pioneer DJ in the jungle dubstep movement, like something yeah. that seems like the newest thing, you're still doing that. Yeah, 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 that's true. Well, I mean, we're, everybody's retreading the ground of a scene. You know what I mean? There's been scenes for hundreds of years. It's just like trying to be not yourself, yeah. trying to speak a language that is of this scene so that you can be less alone and you can feel accepted. Yeah. But like as a teenager, like as like a 15 or 16 year old or whatever, I was like trying to be like these guys who were like young adults in the 1970s, you know, like that was like who I looked up to. Well, but, and I that's, mean, but the tradition of punk rock in San Francisco, you had Green Day. Well, but that was like we were like, fuck that shit. Fine, but they proved that they could be important yeah. and successful. I'm not saying like they were a level of excellence. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, I'm not a, you know, my punk rock world is probably the clash. You know, that's yeah. probably like, I mean, that's basically the beginning and end for me. Yeah. But, yeah. but that doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Like, I, I respect Green Day that they pulled it off. Well, the thing is, though, San Francisco punk, which we were really into, like San Francisco punk for the 70s and 80s 
really junky punk. Right, right, right. Like right. the biggest, like our fa- my favorite band when I was 15 was this band Sick Pleasure. Okay. Put out one seven inch in fucking like right, 1979. Right. And you love the obscurity. Yeah, yeah. And, but also they were like complete junkies. Like, and then like the guy was still around and he was still a junkie. <laughs> Which is insane. I think he's still around. It probably is. St- I, don't know, actually, I don't know. I don't know. I want to talk shit on the guy. I'm sure. He- but the band, I was like, these guys are the fucking coolest guys. The real, real. The real shit. And they're all fucking junkies. And I guess I always had that in my head. I'm like, all these bands I like were junkies and they still made fucking great music. I was, our records were all right, but I was never a very good musician. But I was just like, this is kind of okay for me to do because I'm into punk. But I also knew that it wasn't okay for me to do because I didn't want to tell anybody. And I didn't want anybody to know the extent of which I was doing. Because nobody you played with was using like you did. I knew people that were, but none of the people in my bands were. One of the guys is a pretty bad alcoholic, but and I knew a lot of really bad alcoholics. And I've, you know, I I, I had friends when I was like 17 or 18, my friend Sam overdosed and died. 18, I think. Uh Sam overdosed and died. And uh I I mean I fucking did heroin at his funeral, like in private, uh by myself. It would be hard if you did it in public. But um and so like I knew and I knew he had been fucking around with that shit too, because I think we had done it together a couple of times, but not really. And I knew other people I knew, like I suspected that they were kind of into it too, but it was really like a private thing that I would do. Cause it was I was like still the glad. dirty, it was the dirty secret that a bunch of people in the scene shared, exactly. but didn't share together. Yes. And like eventually sort of a loose group of us found each other, but I was always like mistrustful of everybody. Well, you know? that's how junkies are. You yeah. set up the little junkie co-op and you don't trust anybody. Anybody. Cause you shouldn't trust a junkie. Like at, that's a, that is uh, advice that you will never steer you wrong. It's like, do not ever trust an active junkie because I lied to everybody about everything and like was completely incapable of being honest with anybody or with myself. Cause like, even with like, after using heroin for months and months and months and months and months intravenously, I was still like, I'm not a junkie. Like I'm just fucking around or whatever. And every day I was, I was never a chipper or whatever. Like I never, at first when I did Oxy, but like, Oxycontin sometimes I like chipped and like did on the weekends or whatever. But once I got into heroin, I was like, I need to do this, you know, four or five times a day. And that's what I did. No, I, 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 I had the same exact experience with it. And it was because I refused to ever feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I and want and I refused to get sick. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I was like, I can't get and i would do anything to not be to sick. not be sick and that's why you can't trust a junkie that's why you can't trust a junkie because imagine this imagine if someone's like you're gonna feel like you want to kill yourself and also you have super flu and you might shit yourself for an indeterminate amount of time and then afterwards you feel really depressed or you feel as good yeah. as you've ever felt in the second you put it in you and all you have to do to do that is just maybe go into the other room and steal 20 dollars out of that person's purse you okay, know? so so when does uh, the Brace Belden crime wave begin? It began pretty soon after I started shooting heroin. Money is not going to the cash register at work. It is going straight into my pocket. In the flower shop? Uh, or at the, where were you at? At there? this point, I was working at a different flower shop uh, in North Beach. I had been fired from the first flower shop because heroin fell out of my backpack. And my boss was like, you can't work here anymore. That's heroin. Uh, then they rehired me, but then I moved... In like uh, in with this woman I was dating who did not know I was a junkie, 
And she lived like way across town. Hostage number one. Yes. And I, yes, that really had something that I like still feel horrible about. Uh, and I started working at a different flower shop in North Beach. And that, there was no one else. I worked alone. And so there was no one to stop me from just being like, yeah, it's $60. Put the $60 in my pocket. And so I basically fed my addiction from stealing from that flower shop. And then, then I got fired from that. For stealing. For, uh, no, for just not showing up to work. Um, so, man, you have this job that you can steal money yes. to stay high. And, I was, and you still can't show up to I was Because yeah. I was trying to score dope and I couldn't score it. Yeah. And I was just like, I can't go to work unless I can score dope. So, like, that is the primary thing that is always coming first no matter what. Is for, I, for the most part in that situation, is it just on the street? No. I had a few dealers. One, Jacques. Uh, and then, but then he eventually was hospitalized more and more because of his multiple sclerosis. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I would buy dope from him at the hospital. And then I had these two guys, Black and Monkey, and they're brothers. And they were very inconsistent, but they also had really – I can't remember what they used to call it. Gas? There was no – Gunpowder. They had gunpowder dope. And that was just like the better heroin. So you could buy it on the street in the Tenderloin, but you might be getting, you're going to get ripped off no matter what. Was it powder? No, it wasn't powder. So why did they call it? God it like, knows. It's like fire. Yeah. Fi it's just yeah, like, right. it's like how they'd say like good weed is gas or right. whatever, you know? I don't, I've never heard that. But. It's kind of newer. I'm old. Yeah. 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 Um, you didn't want to say that. But, uh, well, it's, you know, uh, but they, uh, so I would, I would, I really wanted the good dope because it would, what went so much further at longer legs. But also, it was just the dope you got in the Tenderloin is so hit or miss. And so, like, and it's almost never really that good, but it's almost always pretty bad. The best thing is it's always there. It's always just That's there. That's the best. So, and you could get it, like, yeah, it's always there. And, like, you know, they would sell it to you in lower quantities, too. Because, like, other guys only did, like, you had to buy, like, a G or a half G. And, like, these guys would be like, you can give me $7 and I'll give you $7 worth of the worst heroin you've ever had in your life. Um, it's like downtown LA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which the only place that someone's ever tried to rob me while I was buying dope was downtown. Was, LA. was downtown LA, and yeah, that was insane. What um, was that? I was trying to buy. I was on a trip with my girlfriend. She didn't know, or she at did. this point it was like she knew I had a problem with substances, but she didn't know I was shooting heroin. And so I was on Suboxone. I'd bought Suboxone for Suboxone on the street, and I was like, I'm gonna like clean up. And we went to LA together. And uh, I was like, I made up that I was going to go hang out with my friend downtown. And well, you were. I was. <laughs> was yeah. gonna, I wanted to go meet a friend. Yeah, see my friend. Make, my, make my, a new one, My maybe. best friend. I'm going to see my best friend downtown. Uh, and I was like, well, I'm just going to go to the place where there's a bunch of tents. And See, that's where that was your mistake. Well, I didn't know, That's the, crack, the cracklands. That went. Uh, the hinterlands. And, east, east, east. Yes. Scary. And, and, uh, and a guy was like. And I asked some lady who looked, she was nodding out. And I was like, where do I, where am I going? And then they did that. I don't know if they ever did this with you. She was like, show me your like track marks. And I had to show her my, like, you know, roll up my sleeves and be like, look, look, I'm, I I'm, shoot I'm, it. I'm like you. I'm also a junkie. Um, and she pointed me to this just street and I went to the street and then this guy went to this tent. Well, no, he tried to get me to go into a tent. I didn't go into the tent, but I sat down next to him and then he just tried to steal my jacket. And I'm wearing like this. It's like an army. Like it's like a jacket that's worth nothing. Right. And I'm like, and I'm like staring at it with him. I'm like, there's nothing in there. I only have ten dollars, anyways. Like you can't. It's in my pocket. I mean, I didn't say it was in my pocket, but I was like, there's nothing. I don't have anything for you to steal. He's just like grabbing your grabbing. LAPD your jacket. fucking squad car rolls up onto the curb. They get out with guns, 
and they just are like, get the fuck out of here to me. And they just start like go, like arresting him, like going to town on him, like pushing him against the That'll wall. That'll teach you from stealing young communist exactly. Jewish people's yeah, jackets. Yeah. Leave this little white boy alone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I just ran. And then eventually I got some dope from somebody, but I was still on Suboxone. When we only, did you get on Suboxone? I mean, I wasn't ever on Suboxone in the way that you're supposed to be on Suboxone. You would just score Suboxone. I would score Suboxone to be like, I'm going to... I'm going to take a break. Take a break. Get my tolerance down. So when, at what point are you like, this is getting fucking out of control? I At that point, I was like, this is out of control. This is, I am not doing well. I've been fired. I actually got fired, I think, that week. I've been fired. I was like starting to do meth. And How did meth get introduced? And were you living off your girlfriend? I was stealing from her. And she caught me stealing. And it was probably the, I remember it every single second of did that. Did you live with her? I did. And I remember every single second, like really vividly of that happening. Tell us every second. Oh my God. I stole her. And it was actually, I remember it because it was the night we got back from LA. I stole her debit card. I looked over her um, shoulder. Code, right? Yeah. And like looked at the pin code and we got back from LA and she knew something was really wrong with me. And she went to bed and I was like wired sick awake because now the Suboxone wore off. I didn't have any dope, I didn't have any Suboxone. It was like midnight, we're back in San Francisco. I just had this really sick ride back from LA, like, but trying to keep it together in front of her. I like the beginnings of sickness. And I like stole her debit card. I got up, I pretended to go to sleep, waited for her to fall asleep for like 30 minutes. I got up and I stole her debit card, went down to, we lived like near Fisherman's Wharf. So I went down there, I got, I don't know how much I got out, but I got a bunch of money out. I uh, fucking took, I think I might have had to take like a cab to Oakland to score. And so like I spent most of the money on a cab ride and I got like a G and I, and I remember getting back and she was awake and uh, she didn't know that I had stolen her debit card though because she didn't seem to look in her purse. And I was just like, I was just taking a walk. Uh, you know, and obviously like I'm not, but and then I really started, I mean, I was just like draining her bank account and I got caught really soon after that. She's like, why am, why do I have no money anymore? And I had, I had stolen a lot of it. And I remember like that feeling of panic and of being caught and of like the world closing in on me. And then also overriding all of that, is this gonna make it so I can't do heroin anymore? Like, is this gonna prevent me from doing dope? Was she like, why are you stealing from me? Or why don't I have any money? Did she accuse you? She or? knew I was me. I mean, who else? She, well, at first she was like, somebody's stealing from me. But you're like, like, we have to find this person. Yeah. And then, but like, she was just, I mean, what I, I mean, she was also very young. And so like, she probably just didn't like. How old were you? I, I was like 21, 22. Right, super yeah. I, I got sober at 24. So like, I guess it was like, must have been 21. And she was your age too? Around there. Yeah. That's yeah, rough. she was like probably the same age as me. Um, and I think she was just like, didn't want to say the words, you're stealing money from me. But then she did. And, you know, I did this whole, it's, it's, I mean, you know what it's like. It's like you, you feel this contrition. You feel really bad about it. But overriding any of that is you're like, I need to get high and not feel like this. Right. And really like I was like crying and like, like beseeching her and I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But like, it's really just like, don't be mad at me. Just give me money. Give don't me, be mad yeah, at me. Don't give me money. I don't need be money. Mad don't at me. be mad at exactly, me. Exactly. Because no matter, like, if between those tears and all that stuff, 
If I had had the opportunity to steal $200 from her pocket right then, I would have absolutely done it. But I need you to, to let me get high yes. and you not be upset about yes. it. I need, those are the only two things yes. I need right now. I had a very similar situation. I, I had like basically the exact same yeah. situation, except my girlfriend at the time knew where I was at and I stole her card every day. Yeah. Oh, I was, no, at this point I was doing it every day. <laughs> you know. Because I had no money coming in. Yeah. Um, I, and, I mean, I, I live with this woman. I didn't work for fucking like, I didn't, and I heard you talk about this also. I, I I lived with this woman. I probably didn't work for six or seven years. Yeah. And we, oh, wow. And we probably didn't fuck for six or seven years. Yep. I heard you talk about that on a podcast. Yeah. Which, which is really oh, funny. Oh, I the was way not fucking it. anymore. And let me tell you this. You mentioned earlier that gay dudes do meth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At this point, I was shooting meth, too. I was... you. If you pointed a bazooka at me and you were like, get a boner right now. It wasn't happening. Never going to happen. You didn't have that crazy... My dick shrinks on meth. But were you also on heroin? Of course. Right. Well, maybe that's it. I had this guy on the show recently. He self-published a book called Fire and Ice, The Meth Bible. That's so sick. And the whole thing is demonic meth sex yes beginning and i was like sitting with him i was like i never had demonic meth sex never. i really missed out i've never had sex on meth but i think it only works with its two guys if there's like a you know how he alcohol, wasn't gay though he wasn't gay he talked about like picking up some crippled woman on the street and fucking them in the wheelchair yeah like and yeah. he said that people were showing up at the spots it's do Whoa, math and I gotta fuck read this him. Book. Yeah, it's 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 it, the audiobook I think is twelve hours long. Jesus. <laughs> I think it's twelve hours I, long. I was not fucking. He I would calls like, himself Boston two percent because only two percent of meth addicts get well. Really? Yes, that's according to Boston two percent. Wow. He used to call himself Boston born again because he's also a born again Christian. Classic. And I could see why that would yeah. people would rather be the two percent. Yeah, yeah. It sounds cool because it's kind of like a one percent or motorcycle guy too. Exactly. But I really feel good that you didn't get to have demonic. Never had sex demonic. Either. I wasn't horny. I was the opposite. I probably didn't have sex. I don't know if I, I busted less nuts than I shit, which was not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but one time, eventually, sometimes what you got to do is I would always go. I like that when you need to make a point, you do. I gotta look at it. I like put my yeah. fingers in yeah, weird like positions. That. But I, yeah, I, very good. I, I would often shoot in the bathroom of Nanan Curry on Geary, kind of downtown. and Curry. and Curry. Okay. It was a twenty-four hour Indian place. Sounds delicious. Oh, it was great. They had a buffet. I used to eat there before I was a junkie. But they had a bathroom that you could enter through a parking garage that had a four-digit code, which I think I remember. It's like 4247 or 4274. I could go for some naan and some curry <laughs> exactly. right about now. Yeah, I had some, I had some a couple nights ago. Delicious. Uh, but uh, I would go in through the parking garage because you didn't have to go through the restaurant. And I knew the code already. And I, I would, what I would do is like once every few days, I would shoot the meth first without the heroin take the biggest dump and then do the heroin and and yeah that's regulation it's regulation I that's like how you that. take it's self-care i like that and i would you know because I, I was only only like a muffin once i was also i weighed like 100 pounds I, I i love that regulation and were you shooting like I, I i did very little meth but the only meth i ever did was in la and i did it like i think just as a like i came out of uh rehab i went to california and my best friend had gotten on meth. And of I was course, like, I'll do yeah. it. 
And then I really did it because I wanted to do heroin so bad and I couldn't live without yes. heroin on Yeah, meth. yeah. And then I started mixing them together. Me too. And I would, balls. I would do one part meth, like five parts heroin. Yes, of course. Yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever bought more than $20 of meth right, at a time. Right, right. Um, because meth also lasts a lot longer. I never liked the feeling of being on meth, like I said earlier, but shooting meth feels... It's exciting. It's exciting, but it's also fucking scary. Very scary. It's scary. It's not good. Shooting heroin was never... I mean, I overdosed twice, but shooting hair like on Shooting heroin, heroin feels very safe. Yes. It feels like but, warm like, milk. Meth, you're like... What's happening? What is going on? Yeah. Nothing feels like that. Thank God. <laughs> and like I, sometimes I think about it. You know, when you first get like, you know, you first get clean and you sort of can find yourself lapsing into like fantasizing about shooting dope and like the ritual and whatever. The warmth. But like when I think about that with meth, I like get the wiggles. Like I'm like, Ugh. Well, Chris, uh, who died, would always talk about he lived for shooting coke. He lived for it, yeah. and and the bell ringer. He would always talk about. Yeah, it, it wasn't my 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 world. I, not my experience with shooting coke either. When I get into bed at night, now the room is really cold, and I yes. get under the blanket. And when that warmth hits me, it's just as good. Exactly, <laughs> I'm fine. Exactly, I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. Well, it's now it's impossible to relapse anyways because you just die immediately because uh, it's all fentanyl. Well, but I, I think I we I know a fair amount of people, and there's probably a fair amount of people listening right now that are like. They're like, I can't, fentanyl can't kill me. I'm immune. Yeah. Like, their fentanyl could easily kill me. But, oh, yeah. But that was something that Chris always would say before he died from fentanyl. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, thank God there wasn't fentanyl. So, so many people I've known have died and said that. Yeah. I I remember at one point, Jacques was like, I can get China White from from New York City. And I was like, oh my God, China White. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so, so classic last exit to brooklyn yeah, i'm gonna fucking do this yeah, channel white yeah. i was like get me this foreign yeah, substance yeah, yeah. he gives it to me it's obviously fentanyl and i'd read How about you fentanyl because i had read about fentanyl before and i'd seen pictures of it but this, at this point it was still really rare you know this is like 2011 or whatever 2012 and so i was like i don't know if this is channel because i'd also done china white before my friend used to bring it back from new york in his underwear on the plane like he'd bring like a hundred stamp bags and we'd, we'd snort it. And uh, the stamp bags are, are so classic. So looking. classic. Did, did, and I remember it, being like, this is so cool. Was, were this, what did the, did the tar always come in balloons? Just balloon? No, not even. Foil? They came in like, guys would like fucking buy like, you know, some food in like the plastic wrapper at the top. They would like wrap it in that. Like in no class, no class. It's like school on tar Saturday. Is, tar is like the lowest you can get. I, I had a guy. It was a whole. It was a classic dopey story where I was in rehab and this fancy Armenian guy, like, got somebody throw a ball, a tennis ball into the rehab full of. That's tar. what I tried to get. But 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 the thing that he had was tar that was stamped on the tar. Wow. And I was like, wow, because every bit That's of tar. That's Armenian as hell. Every bit of tar I ever got was the Just garbage. The garbage. Garbage. Stunk. Yeah. Like it's like yeah. you're shooting oil. Yeah, it's garbage. Yeah. But this Horrible. guy had a I was one I mean I haven't stumbled across anybody else who no, ever got I've that never, stamp. That's tar. crazy. I know. I remember calling from a rehab to try to get a dealer to throw and I was like, I'm just gonna rip this guy off. Because eventually I started doing that. I started ripping off dealers. And I burned because this is the thing. I'm a little white guy with glasses. I'm not a little, normal sized white guy with glasses. But, you know, I look very non threatening. I am non threatening. So I'd be like, I, you know, I'd go to a dealer consistently for a while, but then I would have no money. And I'd be like, I need you to front me. And I would, I would purposely do this throughout our relationship where I get fronted. And then I would ask for like a lot. 
And well, you'd like, get a front, and then you'd show him that you were trustworthy. Yes, and pay for the small exactly, front. and that space for the small front. Yes. And I get it till I got to the big front. Yes, and then I'd be like, "Listen, and I'll pay you like two hundred bucks extra." Right? Yeah, so I get fronted like four hundred, five hundred, six hundred bucks uh. out of the dope, and then block that fucking number. Never go to that part of town again. That's where you go to treatment. Yeah, <laughs> well, and I did that, and then I got the shit beat. What happened? Me. Well, he just, it was a guy I'd ripped off. And it was, it was like a week after I'd gotten out of some detox, did not stay sober. But I was not on drugs that week. And uh, he just, I was walking down Market Street. The guy saw me. I didn't see him. He ran up behind me and just started fucking beating me. I think he hit me with a pistol. I don't know. But he hit me with something really hard and metal in the back of the head and just like, Went to town on me, beat the fuck out of me. Did he ask you for the money, or is he more no, interested? No, he was just beat the fuck. He out was of me. very. He hurt. knew I didn't have. Any you money. heard him. I heard him. Wow, that's the other thing. I made amends to a dope dealer, and I had to pay him back. And he cried. Not a different dope dealer. Tell him. Let me hear the story. So I, one guy, I had ripped off, and he, I ripped him off very. And he was actually. This was the only heroin dealer I had that was genuinely nice. He brought his little daughter along, you know. Which, How old was the daughter? Like four. That's rough. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, you know, uh, he didn't seem like he was on dope himself. Who knows? But uh, he. Uh, he probably was. Probably. Almost certainly. Yes. But, you know, he like he was like very like punctual and blah, blah, and like kind of business like, but like friendly and didn't try to like do anything weird and like you know how well, it's his life right yeah exactly yeah he's like he's, i sell dope with yeah. my daughter do it when i can yeah these are my clients exactly yo he didn't well all they all refer to you as clients but yeah and i stole 200 dollars from him with her heroin and like all right how i got it fronted it? to me uh and i was like i'll pay you 300 dollars tomorrow at 12 12 you know noon meet me here i'll give you 300 dollars and I knew that I was not going to be there the next day. And I did this a lot, you know. Uh, I did this like four or five times to different people, or five, maybe six or seven times. Uh, but when I got really actually got clean, I was working like two blocks from where he lived. And I was like, this guy is going to shoot me because he had called and threatened me. And I called him and I was like, hey, listen, I got clean because I'd been arrested. It's like, I got clean. Uh, and I borrowed $200 from, I think, my dad, and I paid the guy, and he cried, which I thought was really weird, but kind of touching in a way. I bet you, you getting sober and paying him was like, it's, it's like when we're these using junkies, and we're, we're fucked up. We're like feral yeah. animals. Yeah, absolutely. And all we are about is taking, 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 uh, yes. and, and getting high, and, and leaving, and like, we're just such... You know, we're absolutely not, no regard for anybody else or, yeah. or ourselves or yeah. anything. So when I, I'd imagine when somebody who's seen you like that, who has a kid yeah. and maybe has a lifestyle of, of somebody, you know, trying to, to make, earn enough to keep a family in, in, in a situation and he sees you with your shit together yeah. and he sees you giving the money, it probably triggered him in a million yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah. It probably like it must have weirdly unlock something from him but yeah he cried and he hugged me mm. he said good luck and yeah. i was like jesus christ but, i like that. that's a very emotional story and then the other, the other hand i did get the shipping out of me out of that guy so it's like you know but i didn't try to pay that other guy back no he beat it out he beat me out, yeah he, he, beat got, it out. he, he got his money's worth he, got his he really worth. beat the fuck out of me too i was like nah he probably gave me a concussion now that i think about it what did you get arrested for i got arrested for buying meth from this guy seven no nine dollars worth of meth 
from a guy in Market Street at three in the morning when I told my girlfriend that I was on a walk. Same girlfriend? Same girlfriend. And at this point, she knew there was something wrong with me, but I was like, Did lying you ever pay her. her back? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, and I'm making living amends by not talking to her anymore. You know, it was one of those things where I'm like, I should not be in this person's life in any way. Um, I never gave that woman. This woman like took care of me for years. Yeah. I never gave her any money. Before. Yeah. Well, this was more immediate. You know what I mean? Like, this what do you was, mean? She was the last. I mean, she was the person I had ripped off, and then I got sober. So it was like I know. It just makes me realize that I probably there's. I mean, I made amends with her in terms of apologizing, yeah. getting out of her life, and 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 trying to own how horrible I was. But I never made any financial amends at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's yeah it's. It was one of those things where, like, I got arrested, and that's, like, when the veil completely dropped. And, like, I had to tell her that I was, like, listen, I'm, like, a real junkie. Like, I, I she had caught me before and, like, found stuff, and I just, like, played it off, like, oh, I do it sometimes. Like, you know, I used to do it a lot, but I don't really do it any Like, the classic lies, whatever came to, to, to hand at that second. But at this point, like, I was arrested for riding methamphetamine on the street at fucking nine, or excuse me, for, with nine dollars worth of methamphetamine at three in the morning. And uh, San Francisco, I got into like a diversion thing where I just went to, I had to go to rehab and they dropped the charge. Cause they hit me with a felony charge, but they're like, if you go to treatment, you don't, they will drop it. And I did that. And that's when I was introduced to like, I had thought about going to like recovery shit before, but I was like, that's weird. I'm not gonna do that. And also, I can't stop getting high. And so this forced me, this is like the first time I'd really been sober for years. And I left the second I was no longer legally required to be there and immediately came back to my dealer's house. I was the first place I went and I just went right back into it. And then I, it's like, it gets really hazy at this point because I started doing a lot of meth so like my timeline isn't completely correct. I mean, I know when I got sober, but I don't really remember like how long in between. But I was in and out of detoxes, in and out of rehabs. Uh, how are you paying for everything? My dad had, uh, it was in SAG-AFTRA. And so they, I was, I, mean, I was still like, I was under 26, so I was still on his insurance. And so it was through my dad's insurance. And he was like- No, not the treatment, the meth. The meth? I started working at like- like off and on at a different flower shop and getting like a little bit of cash and getting a little, little bit, bit of cash. And like, I would borrow money from people. I was breaking into my parents' house and stealing stuff. Selling it. Yeah. Sell, yeah and like in money. But when did you start selling all those records? Well, that's the other thing I started selling. I had thousands of records and I had really good records. Me too. I've always been like a really like, a, like a, like a guy who like hunted for cheap, good, expensive records. We call them record collectors. Record collector. I'd been a record collector. And I, so I had thousands of LPs and thousands of 45s. Yeah. And I sold, and I knew a guy who worked at the buying desk at Amoeba. So he would give me more money than they would give anyone else. So good. And so I would just like, and I was, I, and I couldn't even really get that high anymore because my habit was so huge. Your I mean, tolerance. It was, was like my time would be like 150 a day to get high. And so, but I could get by on like 50 a day. But not feel good. I would still feel like it's, fucked up. But you wouldn't. You wouldn't be in I total withdrawal. Exactly. And so I was just doing whatever I had to do, selling uh, anything that I could. 
Would you make pseudo political speeches to your dealers about the working man and communism? I thought the working man was just another any kind of man was somebody that I could get money from in some way. <laughs> if the working man is working, he's a sucker. So you know, I was what they would have called gone. a lumpen proletariat. Right, right. Um, and I know, yeah, I did not give a fuck. About, I read a lot about politics, funnily enough. Uh, and I would always read things and be like, I wish I lived in a different time period when they didn't have heroin, <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because they've they always, they right. always, exactly. yeah, always have, but you um, probably read and nod out while you read it. Oh, so often. I probably read so many books. That I have not a fucking glimmer of recognition that I actually read. It's amazing how that works though. It's like, I remember I used to use and I would play guitars just so I'd nod out. Yeah. Or I would just read comics. Yeah. I would get high and read comics and nod out into the into it, whatever. Any I, I mean, I I whatever I would do, I really did it so I could nod out. Yeah. Like like anything yes. I did was was in order to make the heroin work more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I was like, there's a certain romanticness to like nodding out that I really attracted to me. What like, was the romance? I just I was like, this is like I remember like when I was like 18 listening to television and being like, this is cool. And like nodding out like in my room in the tended one. I was like, man, this is, I'm cool. It's, it's, it's a, it's an aesthetic, you know? And, yeah. it, and it's, I heard you talk about uh, how much you hate when kids say, hate when my daughter, say, my daughter, she's like, oh, it's so aesthetic. It's what every kid, it's, it's so a Zoomer aesthetic. thing or whatever, Gen Alpha thing. It's like, very, very funny. They all say it. But I thought it was like, I wanted, you know, like a lot of punks, like I wanted to be like these cool guys that were in the 70s or whatever. I felt like that about the Velvet Underground. Yeah, exactly. Like, that was my, I loved that was my aesthetic. I love Lou Reed. I was like, I, th I thought it, we once, my friend, friends, <laughs> my roommate stole a Lou Reed painting from someone's house that he saw in the second story, not a painting by Lou Reed, a painting of Lou Reed, um, that like famous kind of black and white picture of him looking, someone had painted it. My friend stole the painting and put it in our apartment. And I was just like, I'm going to, I am Lou Reed. Like I'm, you know, and I, I, I'm like, I can do all this heroin. I'm this like cool guy in the city, but I was a fucking loser. Like I had no, like the difference between me and Lou Reed is that I wasn't writing any of those songs. I was just a guy on heroin. But because of that heroin, the fact that I wasn't doing any of these like creative things, I could kind of like, like I could just be like, I will do that someday. Yeah, Heroin allows you to like dream. That. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're like there. You might. It's, yeah. it's almost good enough. It's like it's, it's almost like, good enough. It's like yeah. getting high on heroin and watching those movies. Yeah. And then you're like, I don't need friends because I have these friends I in this movie. Exactly. I don't need experiences because I'm experiencing that. Exactly. And I, I felt the exact same way about because your Lou world Reed. becomes so small, but you're dreaming in such like. The spires of Kublai Khan or whatever. And intensity. Intensity. The dream like becomes almost virtual reality. Exactly. Chemical virtual it's reality. It's this weird sort of semi-psychedelic experience where like you can almost inhabit this different life while your life is actually fucking, frankly, for me, it was pathetic. Well, it's incredible. It's yeah. like when they talk about television being the opiate for the masses, it's like opiates no, are, really, are really effective with television. Yes, yes. <laughs> You're next fucking level. And I just, I was so like, I was so enwrapped. And it's another story to tell yourself, you know? It's like another story to cope with the fact that like, actually, you weigh 100 pounds. Everybody hates you. You're sick. You have fucking like, you're infected in your fucking arms. You have no future. No hope. You stink. You have no hope. 
and your parents are like, get like, they're, never they're, talk to us again. And they're very, very worried they're, and they're, in a lot of pain. Exactly. And you're and, providing them and with you're, the pain. you're actually not Lou Reed. Yeah. You are just some fucking junkie, just like all the other junkies out there. You just think you're better because you listen to a couple records that make you make that mental thing that it's okay that I'm doing this. And, and but then that chemical makes you believe it. Yeah. If you have enough of it and you're tolerant yeah, exactly. and it's the right one. And then when it wears off, you don't believe it anymore. And so you really got to go you get that. You need it because you see your real life. Exactly. How do you enter into the recovery? I just in and out of detoxes, in and out of rehabs. And then I got kicked out. Uh, and I, you know, they take you to meetings and I was like, I, God is stupid. And I, I never even thought about God in any real way. But I latched onto that as a way to be like, I don't have to do 12-step stuff because I don't believe in God because I'm too smart. Even though I didn't even think I was smart. Like, How Jewish were you growing up? How Jewish was your dad? Not at all. Right. Like my, I mean, I was. Like, but there was no God. You know, we did like the, we did like the holidays and like, you know, all that kind of shit. But like. But there's no God. It's like, we weren't like, oh, you know, yeah. And like, I, but like by the time I was like 10, everybody on the Jewish side of my family is dead, except for my aunt who we didn't talk to anymore. And so like after that, my dad doesn't believe in God. And so like we kind of was just like, that's it. You know, like I didn't have a bar mitzvah or anything like that. And I was like, think I went to a bunch, but I was like, I don't care about any of this. I stuff. had to be bar mitzvah. Did your, did your girlfriend leave you at what point? Fuck yeah, she did. And thank God she did. At what point? Thank God. At what thank, point? Thank God. I, what, she left. It's too late. I think both of us would probably say she left me much later than she should have. But she did. She, she left and, and, and moved. And that, uh, I, but I, you know, I was still trying to, even when I was like first sober, I was like trying to manipulate her so that I didn't have to feel bad about all the shit that I did was really, that was really bad. Because I I couldn't admit to myself that I had done these things that I thought were horrible and that I would judge someone else really harshly for. Because for me, oh, I'm just kidding. Like, this isn't like, you know, I couldn't take any real responsibility for like a year. I couldn't take any real responsibility. But that's part of probably the compartmentalization. Because yeah. you can't live with what you've done. Exactly. And you can't, I mean, how far after the arrest, were you still with her at the arrest? I was, I don't know, probably six months. And then did you move in with your dad? Uh, I moved into a, like, sober house. And was that the beginning of the beginning? Oh, God, that was kind of the end of the end. Uh, because I did not stay sober in those sober houses. Did you use them in the sober house? Fuck, yeah, I, I in used in rehab, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I smuggled heroin into rehab and shot it during the detox phase. I don't think there is better heroin than the heroin you get to use oh in God. treatment. That's so good. That's amazing. Amazing. It's so fucked up to be that fucked up yes. in treatment, though. It's so fucked up. And especially because the heroin ran out when my detox period was over. I know. It's the worst. And then you get so sick. And then they're like, why are you sick? Why are you sick? And I'm and like, what do you say? I guess I was really addicted to heroin. <laughs> and they caught me with a spoon, but I didn't have any. They caught me with the spoon. But I, I'd used up the last of my heroin. And they were like, I was like, oh, this was just in my stuff, which is believable. Sure. Um, but wasn't true. And then I was just, yeah, sick. And Would they kick you out or they'd let you go cold turkey using Well, they the drug tested me, but guess what? I tested positive for heroin. I had just been on it. I came in three days before. See, that strikes me as an opportunity to get more detox drugs. Because how could you not? Yeah. Well, they weren't giving me subs at this point. Like, like they were well, just subs giving would me... have blocked you on the heroin. Exactly. So That's what like... happened with that Armenian guy. I was on buprenorphine, and the the dude threw in the fucking tennis ball full of dope. Yeah. And it was like you watched a pal show. 
Do you, ever, yeah, you know, yeah. like every time like the, the scene would happen and the break dancing guy would yeah, come out. Yeah. Be, that was like what happened when the ball of heroin came into the detox. Every person was scrambling to use this tar. Like somebody busted out a needle out of the bed post. They're all sharing the oh, needle. Oh, like in, uh, what was that? Like heavyweights. Have I you seen even, that movie? No. Oh, they all like candy hidden around. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's yeah, like yeah. that. And I take my little piece and I shove the tar. He, he gave it to people? Yes. Wow. And everybody used. Everybody in that dorm of used. Of course. And, and four of the guys are sharing a needle. I'm yeah. shoving tar Easy. up my nose, blocked. Yeah. But so like, obviously, if you get heroin in treatment, you don't take buprenorphine. No, no. I, was, I wasn't on it. But then I was this like in a series of halfway houses. My roommate died in one of them from Coke, mm, which is overdose crazy. On coke. Overdose on Coke. And I not moved, fentanyl. Not fentanyl. This is prior to like that kind of shit happening. Um, and I got kicked out of one for using. I moved like far away so that I wouldn't get like wouldn't be able to go to my dealers. But turns out I would just take like a three hour bus. Like the quest for fire. Yeah, oh my god, dude, it was insane. And I remember Tinder had just come out. Mm. And so I was like, well, I can't be on heroin anymore at the first place. But now I can have, I'm horny. And so I would Tinder's choose, the greatest. I would be so, well, this is, I've only used it twice in my life. And this a, was, was, for my my single semi-sober period was the best. Well, I, I, I would just be like, listen, ladies, I live kind of far outside of the city. Not that far, but I live outside the city. I don't have a car. I don't have a job. I have a 10 p.m. curfew or I am homeless and uh, I can't go drink. And I'm ready for love. And I'm ready for love. And I would just get like girls would just come pick me up. And I like I had slept with a woman who worked at my rehab. Um, which Some I, like tech lady. It was she was like the like it just start like she was not like a therapist. And you were and you were a client. I was a client. That's yeah. great. I, I that's felt fanta that's fantastic. Well. Yes and no. What's said, not fantastic? What's that? She got fired. Well, what is she doing now? I don't know. I don't remember her name. I wonder if she's in the true anon world. God, I hope not. Why I not? Just, I just feel bad because she thought I ghosted her. Because, but I'd actually just lost my like little flip phone cell phone because I had relapsed. I'm sure at some point she realized fucking the junk, the young junkie clients at my rehab is probably. She told not. me she had never met a Jewish person before. And I was like, there's no you way. You were exotic. And I'm like, there's no way. But I remember she got, basically she got fired because they, like, they caught me like standing like above her with my arm out and be like, uh. Wait, what do you mean? Like, you know, like when you're like chatting a lady up and you're kind of standing oh, over yeah, her with yeah, like your yeah, arm. Yeah. Uh, Leaning up in the doorway. Yes. yes. And she got fired and we stand, we, uh, we didn't sleep together when I was at the rehab, but we started sleeping together the day I got out of rehab, you know? And so I, I got, was like, I was going to try to distract, distract myself with sex but then it turns out, actually, I would just rather distract myself with heroin. Sure. So I got back into that. And then the same cycle of, like, I would get sober, go to a detox for, like, a week, and then go into a halfway house. And, like, eventually I was just living in this basement apartment, stealing my roommate's change from her giant – she had, like, a giant – those, like, Costco cheese puff ball things with, like, quarters and dimes in it. And I would take, like, $10 every day from that. And you barely made a dent. And uh, I would go buy, I would go take it to the coin star at Safeway. And then I'd have like $9 worth of dollar bills. And then I would go buy $9 worth of do uh, dope with that. And I would smoke cigarettes. I was, at this point, I'd been smoking only cigarettes off the ground for yeah, like a year. Yeah. I was using fucking butts to fucking like use cigarette butts to shoot up with as a filter. 
uh, I was like really, really, really down. And I remember I was sitting in this windowless basement room, sick. I like tried to cut part of my foot off because when I was tweaking, I didn't know permanent damage, but I had like hallucinated that I had, had like a weird boil on there that I was going to try to lance with a combat knife that I had. And I, I called my dad and I was like, hey, like, I, and we hadn't talked for a little while, I think. I don't know, but I don't think we had. He was pretty mad at me because I had stolen some money from him. And uh, I was like, I need your help. Like, And it was the first time I'd really ever asked for help. And I got put into a detox. And then I was immediately, within three days, kicked out of the detox for being rude. Because I, I was. I was a little asshole. And um, That's how we are. Yeah. And then I just, I, they were like, you're not going to stay sober. So I was like, suck my dick. Give me a bunch of uh, clonidine patches. And so I just sat in this windowless basement room, no TV, no and computer. You like that? With, I kicked with clonidine. clonidine I covered my body in clonidine patches, and I would listen to um, the pretty things, SF Sorrow, and over and over and over again, I would just weep for like a week. Wow. Uh, with a bunch of like uh, cigarette butts that I collected from the streets outside, uh, I like went out and like collected all of them, and then like had them in this like box, and I would go, I would smoke those in my room. I could uh, taste them right now. Yeah. Oh God, I smoked so many gutter snipes. It's still, I still want to smoke. Yeah. It still makes me want to. Smoke. Well, it's somebody else's cigarette of all kinds. So disgusting in this building. Like the the cigarettes that would be sitting in the oh ashtray. Oh my God. Go downstairs. Oh, probably full I would, ones. I would just be ringing doorbells to get money. You know, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Probably full cigarettes in this building. When you get, it's like a, it's like finding the trick or treater that oh gives the full, God. the full candy finding bar. Finding like a, a pack of cigarettes half crushed in the ground with like three full cigs in them. It's incredible. Incredible. Or finding anything. Yeah, finding anything. It's pretty it's great. So, I was yeah, finding money. The other day I found five bucks. I felt like so it was the greatest good. thing that Every ever time happened. I find money now though, I just get, I have, I have to give it to a homeless person. I'm not saying that to sound like. No, it's great. Like, because I'm like, you should have found that. Well, good for you, man. I I haven't done that. I had I've only found it money like three or four times in my life. I lived in New York, and this is going to be fucked up. What I'm about to say. I lived in New York City most of my life. Yeah, I've never given a homeless person more than a dollar. Yeah, never, never once. And the last time I gave a homeless person a dollar, they yelled at me that it wasn't enough money. Well, inflation. I know. I I, know. I mean, like, I one time I found a hundred dollar bill. I did not think about doing anything besides keeping it and well, i wasn't and i was sober i've only found like 20s before but you've given them away but or 20 20s once but i found like five and one dollar bills before yeah it's a I'm fantastic like, policy because you see a pot like a fucking like a fucking like a homeless person like a block away and i'm like i am a fucking podcaster and i'm not saying like i'm not like a good person like it's guilt it's not like it's no not, you're no you can be a but, good person Listen, you're allowed to be a good person. This is a great policy. But it's always just like well, that's I my new feel policy. Back, I'm like this dude got caught slipping. Actually, I'm not. I'm. Not, I don't know. That's gonna be my new policy. Be a good person. I I try to be a good person. I don't know. Yeah. If I found a twenty dollar on the street and I see some homeless guy in the next street that I could give it to them. I just would feel so bad if I didn't. It's not about them. It's guilt. It's it's like I would just feel like a fucking asshole, and I hate feeling like a fucking asshole. Well, I think it's a good policy. I, I just. Even though I just said I was going to claim it, I don't think I can. Yeah. But uh, anyway, the early days of your recovery. And I mean, how are we going to get to Syria? I don't know. What are we going to do? It's, how long are we going to go? We're going. Uh, oh, it's like almost two hours. Yeah, well, it's a good story, though. I get I get sober and I just I live next to this like like sobriety center place, like those meetings or whatever. And I, I just I have no money. I have no friends. I have no job and I have no nothing coming in. 
So I was like, uh, and my lease is up. Well, not my lease. This room. I, my dad paid rent for like three months for me. The three so months. He's like, you can live in this place for like $400 <laughs> a month. Yeah. So I would just go to these like meetings all day and just drink because I had coffee there. So I'd go there in the morning and I had cookies and then some fucking old guy would take you out to lunch with a bunch of people. And That's be like, nice. oh, I don't have any money. And they would pay for you. And But I, I, I was really resistant. And I was then it sort of struck me that I had to get sober. And I also... Yeah, I like. I was just like, I I can't do this anymore. Like you were I, done. I was done, and I was just, I was so, I was so tired. You went hard. Yeah, and I was like, but I was only twenty four, and so I was like, fuck, dude. Like, I'm only tw- I can't drink again ever. All my friends are like burgeoning or bad alcoholics. I don't know what to do if I can't hang out in bar. I hung out in bars all day. Every day when I wasn't fucking working. So how did you do it then? Like, how did you swallow the fact that that you were down to try this thing? Uh, I it I was just like I had no alternative because I was like, oh, if I drink again, I'm just gonna go right back to this. If I smoke, fucking, I'd relapsed so many times in that like eight months that I was in and out of these places that I was like, fuck, like I don't have a choice and I'm gonna die. Like I was like really sick. I had hit an artery shooting up in this when I was uh, doing a flower delivery and like almost it was just a whole big medical complication. Ended up fine, but uh, probably wouldn't have if any other variable had been different. And I was just like, I got some distance that I hadn't had before, some weird mental clarity. And I was just like, I held on. I was still very resistant, but I was just like, I literally was just like, I'm just going to do this one day at a time. And like, I don't want to be sick again. And so I'm just going to, I know I'm probably going to do heroin again, but I just won't do it today. And I just kept that in my brain. It was like the most basic, simple shit. Do you think it had anything to do with the same kind of mythology that got you totally down and out on heroin, that same punk rock kind of like cultural mythology of being a junkie, being clean? Like you knew that a bunch of them had gotten out of it. Yeah. Yeah. But I like didn't. I think I think part of me it's weird because I stayed in the music scene and I still I, like I still that's a large part of my life, but I realized like at that point I was like, no, I, it wasn't. I was like I felt like completely adrift and like sort of done. Like my identity had been sort of shattered because this whole mythology I'd built up about myself had really been like I had seen it for what it was or I was beginning to see it for that what it was, it was bullshit. And I'm like I'm bullshit. I'm a bullshitter. You know what I mean? Like I'm not like. I, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a poser of the worst kind because like, I'm just like, I used these cool lives of other people that I basically fantasized about and made up, you know, not in like a real conscious way, but like, I'm not Lou Reed is what I'm saying. And, uh, and Lou Reed, what was he doing at that point? Making fucking, uh, that horrible record with Metallica. But he was very sober. Very and sober. And he was doing a lot of Tai Chi. And doing a lot of Tai Chi. His last record before he died was a double LP of Meditations on the Hudson, Tai Chi music. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, man, like, fuck. Like, I fuck. And I kept being like, I fucked this up for myself. Right. Like, but I, there was nothing else that could have happened, you know? And so, so did the idea of being sober become a positive or you were just like, I'm done being this fucking I, I was guy. just like, I'm done being this fucking guy. But then it was like, I had been so fucked up for so many years and for so many crucial, like I didn't go to college. I had no savings. I had no career. I had no skills. I had nothing. And so I was just like, fuck. And, uh, I, 
you know, I, I met this woman and moved in with her immediately when it ended up actually working out. We were together for seven years and very healthy relationship somehow. But I just like, was like, I had to like really start over from like nothing. I mean, I didn't know, I like didn't want to hang out with my friends anymore. I didn't, I felt disconnected from like, I mean, most of my friends didn't like me. I owed several of them money. And, uh, I was just like, I have to find like a new, I have to grow up. I'm fucking you have 20. to find something. I have to find something, but also I have to grow up. Like I have to like act like a fucking adult, you know? And like I have to like take care of myself. And See, like, that, that didn't happen to me until I was 41. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. That's I fine. mean, that's in this way, I'm glad I, I got it's sober great. I was 24. It's great. It's because great. I was just like, oh shit, like I like everyone else, I, even like a lot of the drunks that I knew, like had at least made some like, you know, they were like a fucking welder or something. And I was like, I don't know how to do anything except make bad bouquets. And I burned most of the flower shops that I would get a job at. So how does joining the Syrian resistance happen? Well, it was, I got a job at a boxing gym through sobriety, actually, through someone I knew who was sober. And at that job- Doing I, what? I was like kind of like front desk and then eventually because of- Were you like training in the back? I did I did work out there, but I was I quickly gave up on boxing because I couldn't pay attention to someone's hands and their feet at the same time. Yeah. But I worked with boxers. I mean, we had pros at the gym and stuff. I worked. I was working there for a couple of years. And in that time, I started reading about- I mean, I'd seen the Civil War been going. This is like 2015, 2016. Uh, it been going on for a number of years. And I read about this woman that had died in this German woman who had died fighting alongside these Turkish communists in Northern Syria who were fighting alongside the Kurds against ISIS. And I was like, this lady, this German Tokelese woman died doing that. And I kind of got obsessed with her story and I read about it like a bunch cause I had a computer now. And, uh, then I eventually found this like website where you could like, e they had foreign volunteers and I, I emailed them this like encrypted thing and they just gave me a date to fly out there and I, I flew out there and there was no fantasy in your head of being close to the poppy fields in turkey <laughs> oh no 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 they give you a machine uh, gun uh, uh well I, I wasn't a machine gunner but they did give, they gave me an rpg at one point but i and i shot fought. a machine gun you yeah fought. yeah we were yeah yeah we, yes were people speaking english no. And what did you? What language were you speaking? Kurdish. Could you speak it? I eventually. And now you can? No. <laughs> but I mean, yes, I could. Like if I, yeah, like I do. I speak it to myself sometimes to try to like I like will just like try to speak full sentences in it and stuff. But I never became like fully proficient. But I could definitely speak to people like have conversations. How rooted was this? Is the, like one of the most insane stories that anybody could ever come by. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. I mean, it's really like. Most people, I got sober and I didn't start a family. Or well, pe I did people that. think I got sober and then like two months later did this. Yeah. But this was two years later. Fine. Two months, two years. Yeah. You wound up going to Syria fighting in a war with an RPG. Yeah. It's yeah. fucking insane. Well, I think a part of me wanted to. I've never lost that. Like, And this is embarrassing, frankly, to admit. But like, part of it is like I believe in what they were fighting for, but also because they were left-wing group that had, you know, started in 1975. It was mostly Kurdish groups fighting against the Turkish government, but they had also spread. It's a too, almost too complicated history for here, but they, I believed in, in, in what, what you think, you think it's too highfalutin for dopey. Just, <laughs> oh no, it just would be boring. I'm with you. Um, but, uh, but also part of it was like, I feel like I should do this. Like I felt like I needed purpose 
And, and like, it's embarrassing to admit. Um, but that's what recovery is. Yeah, it's yeah. It's finding something. And then I think in your case, you were so extremely down. You needed to do something extremely crazy. Well, it almost was, for self-esteem. It was, it was also just like, well, why not? Like, other people do this. Why can't I do this? It can't be that crazy. And like, How bad was it out there? It was bad sometimes and boring most of the time. Were people shooting at you? Yeah. Were you shooting at people? Yeah. Did you kill anybody? Uh, no, 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 no. We, I, I don't think so. I'm not allowed to ask that question. <laughs> no, I don't think you so. You just gave me the first. That was well, the first it's just, look. It's, it's, that was it's the first. No, okay. no, 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 no. Um, Terrifying. Though. We tried to. I, mean, I tried to. People, Terrifying. Yeah. Um, but I, most of the time. I apologize for asking. It's that. all right. I mean, most of the time it's like, it's kind of like a, I view it as like a tragic comedy. Like it was boring and funny and scary and sad. Uh, but I also loved it. In a weird way. Uh, it's like me at Katz's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's... It, uh, Except instead uh, of Kurds, it was Dominicans. And instead of uh, fighting in a war, I was just serving sandwiches. <laughs> but besides that, it's like the same thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because I also, I sort of don't even talk about it that much because I don't want to be like the Syrian Civil War guy. I'm not saying this is like, we can't talk about it. But like, I, I felt like very... Because I kind of got... Like, it was like a couple articles about me. Or one article about me and then like one that I was that was kind of about me about a bunch of people. But I got like a lot of recognition and I felt very weird about that. And I was like, fuck, like I don't I, it made me feel like really anxious and tense. And so when I got back, came, I was there for seven months, got back and uh, and I sort of just felt totally like disconnected again. And like this weird almost felt like early sobriety where I was just like. I don't know what to do with myself. Uh, I miss it. You know, I, I liked it. I felt like part of something and I felt like, like, I think that like there is nothing like that experience, but it's, it definitely leaves a big impression on you. Right. And, and how, what part does it play in concert with, with recovery? Well, I mean, funnily enough, I had, there's like no opiates out there. Like they like can't get it because it's like medicine and like, there's like a blockade from Turkey and they're like not fighting the Syrian government. They were fighting ISIS. And now they're fighting the other groups. It's complicated. The, but Turkey has the border with them and they blockade like a lot of medicine coming in. So there was like no opiates. And so if you got shot, they hit you with ketamine. Uh, my friend actually went into like a crazy K-hole after he got hit and like sounded like a nightmare. But I had morphine in a syringe for the whole time I was there and I never, never used it. Well, like just in case. Just in, well, it's if you get shot. Like, that's like, you keep, like, I was part of a med kit. It's um, a much different story than if you were like, I got to Turkey to fight in the civil war. And as soon as they gave me the syringe full <laughs> of meth, I shot. Yes. Yeah. Um, I did. I did. I would take propanolol. So I would take beta blockers before scary stuff happened so that you didn't sweat like crazy. And it did help, but that's not really a narcotic. I just think it's amazing. Cause it's like, all we're supposed to do is find a purpose. And you found the craziest purpose. And then you and why did you come back when you came back? I mean, really, it was because like I I'd lied to everybody about what I was doing, and like I, your dad, my everybody. What'd I mean, you tell? I, your dad? I didn't tell most people I was leaving at all. I told them I was gonna like volunteer at a radio. I like made some crazy lie up, but it uh, like I was like a radio station. But I just I had seen like an article about a radio station in Syria, so I was like, well, if they Google it, they'll find that, and they'll just think I'm doing that. And I lied to everybody and like kind of felt bad about it. But also like my girlfriend was like, you got to, you said six months. 
you got to come back after six months. It's funny when I did the last Jewish waiter, the third episode got hacked and my whole account got blocked by the Syrian Liberation Army. Oh, SLA. Uh, free, really? Yeah, it was really weird. Weird. Yeah, it was really. I was wondering because it was called the Last Jewish Waiter. I think that's why. I mean, interesting. I, I have no idea. It's one of those things. Well, we we um, you know, so I, I I got back and I felt really like disconnected and like weird and like not at home. And then I got a job as at a brewery, and then I sort of had like a mission and to do to like unionize to do. the debris. And so yeah, it's been the next uh two and a half years like working on like a union campaign there. And when does Truanon start? Like 2019, I had just got my merchant marine card. So I was like, my next stage in life is I'm gonna be a sailor. I'm gonna like work on cargo ships, lifelong dream of mine. I'm gonna be a merchant marine, pays really good. You know, there's a strong union. I know a guy who does it. He gets paid like 250k a year. Uh and so I'd just gotten like this long process to get the card. And then a few of my friends and I were just like a couple of my friends and I were just fucking around. We did a podcast episode and it blew up. And so I was like, that oh, first episode, the first episode. Yeah. First one like got really, it's uh, great. And, and people like it. It's great. It's um, great. And I'm not, I have no interest in anything yeah. except like this stuff for whatever reason. And I was riveted. I thought it was so good. I, it's, and, and so I was like, wow, this is, then this is something I'm like kind of okay at. And so I, I think was like, you're fantastic. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just do I'll do this until the wheels fall off, and it's fun, and it's like it's very different, and I, it brought me to a lot of different places, and it changed my life in a lot of crazy ways. But yeah, so the show, the union campaign was a success, by the way. I want to say that. I wish but, you could help the the deli workers union. It's so horrible. Is there one here? It's horrible. That's you, my union. It's really horrible. What's what? What is it? Uh, what's it called? Is it U-C-O-U-S? So like the, like, I, can, I can show you. Hold on. It's called. Oh, yeah, your card. Yeah. U- UFCW. UFCW. Yeah, that is. a. T- they do like most grocery stores and stuff, too. They're not a very. Terrible. Our, our union was a little different because it's an independent union. So it's like not part of like AFL-CIO. And so it, it was like dock workers union. Like they control all the ports on the West Coast. And like they do inland ships. Um, and so it has like a lot of leverage like that. So it's a pretty powerful union, but we were a brewery. And so it was like a factory, like they have like a division for that, or like warehouses, but yeah, UFCW is, it's bad. is tough. Yeah, it's bad. But, um, I think that's cool. I, I like, I, I love your whole story. It's, I think it's amazing. Where are you at with, um, meetings and stuff now? I go, well, it's funny this week. You don't go. I, I didn't go this week, but I go three times a week. All right. And, uh, and do you feel the similarity and solidarity between like union brotherhood, communist brotherhood and uh, 12 step? Well, it's funny. It's funny because I hate anarchism, but I don't hate. I mean, whatever. I, you know, but I don't believe in it. I like that you said that. But, uh, but I, I like AA, like 12 step stuff functions in this way that almost nothing else in society functions like where you have this like leaderless thing and obviously there's clicks and shit that form but like not at all of them certainly not at a lot of them i go to uh and it's this i've never seen anything operate like that and like i think beyond even the politics stuff i think that one thing that people don't have in like 2024 20, or for the past 20 years really is like there are more than that there's like this great separation like there's no places that like like people, there's people don't go to the Elks Club or like you know go you know, to join their bowling team or anything. It's it's a very people leave these solitary lives 
often filled with like vague anxiety, tenseness, misery, isolation, isolation. And I can't think of really anything else besides like church, maybe, which people also don't really go to anymore uh, and has its own set of problems. But I can't think of anything that brings together people who believe in different things and like uh, may even hate each other in any other context or whatever and bring together for that, that I don't want to say brotherhood because obviously it's not just men in it, but like that sense Would of say peoplehood, peoplehood, <laughs> but it doesn't have the same brotherhood. just sounds fellowship, fellowship. It's that, that fellowship like that, that I think is, is the primary reason like that. And like, you know, like being able to like, you know, feel love or whatever, like the primary reason that like you can like be alive, you know, connect with other people. And you really, there's almost like no other place that you can do that it, with such ease. And I, I don't know, it's, it's, I, I've been in the program for like 10 years and so, but sober for nine. Um, and it just, it's something also like, there's very few things I think in a lot of people's lives that are consistent. And I think that consistency is, is, is really key. I'm with you. Yeah. We took a lot of your time. How do you feel? I feel good. I feel like I rambled about. So my other thing is I can't sleep. Why not? What are you taking? Oh man. What are well, you taking? I, usually nothing, but uh, like a milligram of melatonin or whatever. One but, milligram? Well, I'm taking the five. Brother, it's all fake. So it doesn't what matter. It? You take none. Oh, I had it's a list of thing. conspiracies to talk. Will you come back on the show sometime? I, I would love to. You'll come back? Yes, I would here love and there? to. Because yeah. I have a whole list of conspiracies oh, we, I, we to talk about. I got a lot of stuff to talk about, but okay. I can't sleep. And it's like four days in Benadryl? a row now. No, I don't do it. Oh, fuck. Actually, I should have taken Benadryl. Just take a Benadryl. I know, but the thing is, like, it gets me so, oh, sorry. It's it gets me so mind. sloppy the next day. Really? Like, One so Benadryl? last night, last night, 4 a.m., I take, I'm prescribed Trazodone. It's I, too late to take I it at four. Taking, you have to take it at 11. I know, but you can't go to sleep with You have to weigh out whether you're going to get enough sleep or whether you like, or whether you're going you to sleep get at all or whether you're going to be a fucking bum the next day. How bad does one Benadryl affect you the next day? I don't know, but I, it never occurs to me to take the Benadryl. Benadryl is, I love it. I, I'll I, do it tonight. I love it. I think it's so good. The dreams are me. I'm having threesomes. Oh. I'm doing dope. What? There's amazing. The trazodone dreams are all nightmares. Everything. Every other people aren't having the dreams I have. I mean, some of my Benadryl dreams are nightmares too. Yeah. But I don't mind. Trazodone is exclusively nightmares. <laughs> but it makes me so sluggish the next day that I'm like, it's not worth it. The dreams I had on trazodone were horrible. Horrible. But HR Geiger. But they were so intense that I really loved them. Yeah. I loved them. I remember I had a dream and then in the morning the dude in the dream was texting me in real life. Jesus. It was like, yeah. The psychic good. connection of Trazodone. Yes, I love the, the don't. That's my big struggle now is sleep. I can't sleep. And so I I, I will go like, like worse than when I was on met. Well, that's not true. But I like will go like four days with like 10 hours of sleep. That's oh, not four. good. I know. What and time so, are you going to bed? Doesn't matter. Tonight, 11. tonight, 11 o'clock, I want you to take one Benadryl. I will do that. And one, how bullshit is melatonin? It's fucking bullshit. How bullshit? It's 100% bullshit. Is it bullshit? Taking it, it right before you sleep, I think it's bullshit. I think you're supposed to take it like 6 p.m. Do not quote me on that. But it, I feel like it puts me in like a warm glass of milk. But that's the, that's the power of the human but mind. But maybe it's your mind that says it's bullshit. I didn't think it was bullshit. Tonight, I want you to, at 11 o'clock. I'll take a Benadryl. One Benadryl and a melatonin. I'll do it. Then right into bed. I'll do it. No messing around. I don't mess around. I no read a book. Messing. I read no, books. Nothing. I'm reading The to Man with the Golden Arm. I'm actually reading a junkie book right now. Oh, that's now. a good book. The, the Man with the book. Golden Arm. Yeah. Listen, Brace Belden, it's been such a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. You had a good time? I had a great time. All right, you have to come back. I, I absolutely will. All right. Very good. Thank you. 
Brace Belden of the Truanon podcast. We didn't even get to conspiracy theories. I don't know if Dopey could handle the political realm of Truanon, but I loved hearing Brace's story. Let me know what you guys thought about Brace. Send in an email or a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And how annoying is my incredibly sick voice? Does it make you guys crazy? I hope not. Hope you guys are well. It's been a long, extended episode of Dopey. Look for... We're going to L.A. tomorrow, like at 3 in the morning. So wish me luck. So the show is going to come out tomorrow, and I'll be in California. Maybe I'll see some of you. Maybe I won't. Follow us in all the social media places. Leave reviews. My dad will be back. Fentanyl J. Supposedly next week will be back. We'll see. We'll see. I'm gonna have to go to his stupid restaurant. It's 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 hard. Tracking down drug addicts is hard. It's not easy stuff. I want to give a big hearty thank you to everybody out in Dopey Land that's helping out. I'm talking to Chrissy and Ben Croxton, all the admins on the Facebook. Dopey Nation, all the admins on the Dopey Podcast, good old Dominic Baldini, Aviza, Amelia, fucking cutting it up. You know who you are. Lizanne, I don't know. Whoever's out there, Suki, whoever's out there helping the cause, I thank you. Two Ray Brown Patreons are out. Another Patreon with Stephen Murray from that uh, Massachusetts overdose prevention hotline is out. Subscribe to Patreon. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times. And Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjo. This thing's hard to keep in tune. <clears throat> Listen to the door.
dopey show Home friends I had her on this little radio I keep checking on my pulse because it feels like I might die But the thought straightening up sounds so much better when you're high And I wanna be good so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had I hope y'all hear this. Makes it through the uh, big inbox emails. Feel free to play a clip on the show if you want. I, if not, I know it kind of sucks. Alright, I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, y'all.